0: As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures, but there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by John Garvin, current Vice President of Creative at Lethos. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by John. How are you?
1: Hello, glad to be here.
0: We were just we were just chatting before the show started about uh, the kind of polar opposites for one of a far better phrase in our in our temperatures and our circumstances today. I, it's seven a.m. for me. It's two p.m. for you. You're blasting air conditioners and fa- fans to keep cool. I've got a feeder. <laughs> I've, br- I've brought a heater yeah. in and um, and put it at my feet to try and keep myself nice and warm. So stark contrast there, but I'm sure it's not going to impede on our ability to have a great chat today
1: but dude that's what i want that's what i love about modern technology is it it's just, it's almost like we're in the same room even though you're literally on the opposite end of the yeah. world
0: <laughs> it, it's it's pretty awesome like that and and it, i'm thrilled that it kind of creates opportunities like this so this is dev diary a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry they share their stories their experiences and the journeys led to this current point in time and Again, as we were talking about before the show started, we were, we were conversing a few months back about the possibility of coming on the show and things didn't kind of work out at the time, but in a fantastic turn of events, there's been some really cool changes in in your career path just within the space of what, the last two to three months
1: thereabouts? That's um, no, actually, for me, it's been longer than that because I think when we first started talking... You know, I didn't really want to talk about any of the stuff I was working on because it was just kind of all blue sky up in the air. Yeah, but I I started working on Asphalt uh, literally over a year ago. Because oh, because okay, there was right. a, so there was the a, public there was a, yeah there was and that's how that's how because I've known Mike Michael Mumbauer, who started Lethos. I've known him for you know for years, and we worked together on a bunch of projects at PlayStation. But uh, he was he was working on this other startup last year or the year before and you know he was involved with this funding group and he was he was trying to get me to deal with them as well so it's like i I created this pitch originally um for another kind of funding group and i had pitched it to michael as like hey so what do you think of this i think this is pretty good because since i quit quit well since i left sony let's just say um i worked on you know i took a couple years off and just did publishing and writing i finished a novel you know i just had it was all my time and I, i do oil paintings too so I did a bunch of that, and then, you know, I started thinking about, like, okay, if I were going to do one more game, and it might turn out to be more than one, but what would it be, and what would I do, how would I build on the last game I made, so that's kind of what Ashfall became, so that's yeah, fantastic. I was working on that when you and I first talked, and I just, you know, I was just still kind of, like, Time up and in place. the air, yeah, and then, you know, Michael approached me a few months ago and said, hey, you remember that pitch you did, and it's like, we think that's really cool, we should do that, so here I am.
0: That's pretty awesome how those things uh, kind of, I guess, ultimately very na- uh, natively, naturally kind of emerge. So, yeah, and yeah, I mean, I guess it was about that time that Michael and I would have been talking for this show as well, and he was talking about that funding sort of pathway, and it was really fascinating to hear that yeah you were going down a similar path, and things obviously ultimately went a different direction, but really, really cool.
1: Dude, so one of the one of the best piece I don't even remember where I read this, but one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was there's no such thing as good luck or good fortune or destiny or karma or any of that. It's all hard work. So if you're yeah. working your butt off on whatever you love doing and then an opportunity comes your way, you're gonna be ready for it. So yeah. it's like yeah, so it's like, dude, when I was working on Ashfall, I spent a year on this thing not knowing if I was ever gonna sell it. In fact I was planning on turning it into a trilogy of novels if I couldn't if I couldn't do anything else with it. But we're, you know but i think it, all i'm saying is it's just literally hard work and that's kind of what i've done my entire career is just you know work really hard at it because i really enjoy it and then yeah. you know good things happen
0: well, well we're obviously going to explore all of that really hard work shortly and all the the incredible uh, products that have stemmed from that but before we get to that side of things i'd love to kind of explore some of your earliest experiences with the medium before you were even creating in it um do you recall what some of your first video games were that you ever played or even more specifically the first game that you ever played by chance oh
1: yeah so so i was literally my life is sort of a record or a a step-by-step history of video games so my stepfather um and this would have been in like 1970 78 or 79 i think is when pong came out so the very one of the very first pong sets He bought for, you know, we had a little black and white TV and we used to, you know, had the two paddles and you had several variations of ponks. We used to, we just played the heck out of that. And then I, you know, I remember, definitely remember wasting way too much money on, you know, the, on the arcade game revolution. So, you know, I remember when the first Asteroids box came into Medford, I I grew up in Medford, Oregon, which is a tiny town in Southern Oregon. Um, You know, remember played all those, all those arcade games and just dump way too many quarters in because i was a young father at the time i had a couple yeah. of kids by then um because i started pretty early but we you know we'd go to the laundromat and say hey i'm going to take the laundry down to the laundromat you know and i would have this whole pocket full Punch of quarters, quarters would, at the same time <laughs> yeah and, you know and a few of them would end up in in asteroids or pac-man or or uh
0: and a couple would know. get the washing done
1: yes the, the washing did get done uh but yeah so and then i played uh oh so i bought one of the first uh, home pcs so I bought an Atari 800, and it cost a. I had to talk my stepdad into loaning me the money for because it, it was like twelve hundred bucks, which was outrageous at the time. And so I, I mean, played it's, Star Raiders. still a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. But well, yeah. back then, that's only six, seven thousand yeah. dollars in nineteen seventy nine yeah. money. Uh, but I played Star Raiders. I bought that console just for Star Raiders, which was a literally kind of the first. It was kind of a rip off of Star Wars, but it was the first first person, you know, space shooter. And then from there, that's when I started creating my own games. So it's like I created an Ultima clone, writing in BASIC. I still have the all the printouts for that. So in a box. Oh, that's awesome. Attic. I had yeah, and I'm gonna publish these at some point. Um, but I've got so I wrote an Ultima clone, and I wrote a uh, strategy game. In fact, I think I, I submitted them to the early game companies, and yep. I just missed out um, in the early in the late 70s and early 80s. You could you could sell a game through Radio Shack. Which is a you know a con- sort of an electronics uh, yeah, chain of stores right, here yeah. in the U.S. Um, and you could put your game in a Ziploc bag <laughs> with a you know piece of cardboard describing yeah. what the game is, and you could sell them that way. Sell- and so, dude, I missed that by. I got really nice letters from like Avalon Hill. And you know, SC, SSI, a couple of the you know the big publishers at yep. the time, they were like, "Yeah, this—if you'd submitted this last year, we could have sold this." But you know, now you kind of need to learn machine language and have a team of five people <laughs> to make a game. So used by that much. <laughs> yeah, so you know, so that's when I started making games. It's like, um, and then I kind of went to college, so I took a few years off and I didn't really do much. But I'm, dude, I remember Southern Oregon State College. It's now Southern Oregon University at Ashland. They had a mainframe computer that was the size of my house, and is not as powerful as my smartphone. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and they, And I
1: learned, a program, I learned to program. I learned to pro. I learned to program Fortran, um, which is basically you take a bunch of punch cards and feed them into this machine, and that's how you program. So that's my yep. my second programming language was Fortran, and then uh, we used to play Star Trek fleet battles on a 320 by 240 dot matrix printer. So every screen was a sheet of paper. So every time your starship makes a move, it spits out another sheet of paper. paper. Yes. So we used to uh, just go through reams and reams of paper. I'm sure the uh, the the admins at the college were wondering where all their paper was going.
0: Yeah. Was it co- was it cost us this much in paper? You know, paper did. just this month alone.
1: Right. What happened? Uh. So in the so then in by the you know by the mid '80s, still played arcade games and played every home console as they came out. Right. So. In fact, I worked in my. uh, In fact, this was also late '70s. I worked at a at a computer chip plant in Medford, and they were making the cartridges for uh, the 2600. So, you know, I probably helped create some of those ET cartridges that are now filling a landfill somewhere in Northern California. That they'll Um, continue
0: to gradually dig up over time.
1: I hope so, right? Because those have got to be worth money now. But uh, yeah, so it's like, and then from there, just every console that ever came out. And then I got my first job in the game industry. At, uh, I was going to graduate school, so I got my bachelor's in Shakespeare, I got my master's in Shakespeare, and then I'm working at, as a part-time uh, teacher at the U of O, and was just tired of being poor, right? So yeah. uh, teachers don't make very much, so I'm working a at Temple <laughs> Eugene, and uh, I saw an ad in the paper saying, "Hey, Dynamics is looking for you know pixel, basically production art." So I kind of brought my portfolio in. Cause like I said, I've always been an artist as well. And, uh, and they, and they hired me. So dude, within two years, I was making more money than any of my tenured professors just because the game industry was just taken off. Yeah. So, you know, in the early nineties, you could go from pixel pusher to art director in two years, which is what I did. And then to full director, directed and wrote my first game after three years in the industry,
0: which obviously, you know, Flashing forward to this current day and age it can take i mean depending on I guess ultimately the pathway you pursue whether you're going down the more traditional triple A path or at the independent scene obviously there can be some variance there but like it can it can take quite a while to firstly earn the 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 titles but also then obviously the pay packet that can come with it
1: i think uh I think if you're trying to break into games today that the kind of path that I took and most people in my generation that path's probably not available because. Yeah. You know, again, I worked at Sony for 25 years, and, the, and you know, I know that those guys—they're—you have to have a degree now. For example, from you know one of the really good art schools. Um, I didn't have an art degree; I had degrees, but not an art degree. So I, you know, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle if you want to—if you just kind of want to break in. But the good news is, there's plenty of opportunities in, in, in indie games. So you know you don't need a degree at all, and all the engines are basically free. Yeah, you like just I prove with, yourself. I, I, I know Unreal pretty well, but I played with Unity a bunch last year when I was taking time off. Um, and dude, you can make some amazing games if you're an artist. You don't even have to know how to program, right? If you yeah. know just a little yeah. C sharp, then you can make some pretty amazing games just by yourself.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. there's lots of incredible options out there for people these days, and it, I mean we see some incredible pro- incredible products out of that as well. I guess as you were doing these studies in, as you mentioned Shakespeare and your teaching, and all, did you always have the eye out for something in games, or was it one of those opportunities? Kind of as you described, there might have, might have. I mean, we've spoken about hard work and and what that gets you, but was there a degree of that one kind of falling in the lap and you've and you and then pounced on it, or was were no, you always just, you chasing know, that prize and it was just a matter of when it ter- the opportunity emerged?
1: You know, the funny thing is, I think um, because you know I. I also used to get Compute magazine, and they had all of these. You could every single issue of Compute magazine had a printout, right? That you could type in yourself. So basically, yeah. small little arcade games, and ba- most of them in BASIC. And I would type all those in. So I kind of, you know, knew a lot about at least very basic level. You know, excuse the pun, basic level game uh, development. But it never even occurred to me to try to find a job in the game industry. I just didn't even know it was a thing. Right, so I remember doing my own garage games and then submitting them to like Avalon Hill and uh, SSI and getting turned down very politely. Uh, and, but you know, I, it never occurred to me like, oh, you know, there's a is there a game company in Eugene, Oregon? I didn't even know. Yeah. And so I didn't know until I saw that ad. So it didn't even occur to me to pursue a job in games. And I I did know for a fact I couldn't make a living at it on my own because yeah. I had tried. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so you, you know, needed to find that I team. Went to college because I figured I would do something that I could make some money at. And it all
0: ultimately worked out and it's obviously, it it obviously started what has been an incredibly successful career for you so far.
1: It's been a very incredibly interesting career. Let's just say that.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess you know ups and downs along the way, and we'll we'll start to dive into those now. You mentioned Dynamics, obviously being that first opportunity there, and you, and you got to work on a, a series of titles, as you mentioned yourself, in a variety of different capacities. There's Nova Nine, there's uh, Willy Beamish, there's Stellar Seven, Bouncers, yeah. Mission Force, Cyberstorm. There's there's a range of different titles there, and I guess a lot of people these days who who know your name know you for the likes of Siphon Filter and Days Gone, and yeah. then obviously the um the the offs of Resistance and Uncharted. But the, I guess the really fascinating thing about those games is that they are so diverse in their nature. I mean, we're talking about some games that are isometric turn-based strategy games. We've got one that is a basketball game, and it, like the, I mean, what was that like? Kind of bouncing from very, so, very different sort of games at the time.
1: So I think you know. So the interesting thing to me is, uh, so I had lunch with Jeff Tennell a couple of weeks ago. He was my the co-founder, the owner of Dynamics you know, co-creator of a bunch of their games, including like Willie Beamish and The Incredible Machine. And, you know, so super talented, visionary guy and was even back in the in the 80s. So, you know, he was the guy who hired me and we had lunch a couple days or a couple weeks ago. And we're just kind of talking about those days. And, you know, and and the, the thing that's that I think is most impressive about Dynamics is how many innovative things they did. Like if you look them up on Wikipedia, I'm not sure if all this stuff is recognized, but like Willie Beamish was the first game to have full Hollywood animation. You know, that they actually hired real animators from Hollywood and real artists and they had, you know, and that, and that was just one of many innovations that, you know, that Jeff and then later on Ken Williams with Sierra online, when they bought them, they just were, you know, they were just making whatever they wanted to make. Yeah. That was fun. So at one point, yeah, I was given uh I was given like two years to just kind of sit in my office, like you know, like almost like it's at Pixar, and just come up with ideas. Disgurring. I was kind of an idea guy, so because I could draw and paint, but I could also write because I had my my uh, my English background. Yeah. Um, I could kind of put together these pitches and proposals, and I was using Deep Paint, animate, and would create little animated sequences. That, hey, how about this? How about this? And finally, one of them, one of them took, and it was just because uh, Jeff was working on a series of games called Earth Siege. Yep. Which was kind of like Dynamics' version of the mech warrior, right? So you got these giant robots wandering around and blowing each other up. And so, you know, my idea was, hey, we could do this as an isometric game because Sierra um slash Dynamics did not have an isometric strategy game in their portfolio yet. So, you know, I kind of pitched this, put together portfolio. Yeah, built the little the built little robots and put together a video demo that showed you know the hexographic grid and the terrain and how you could you know and there were some things i would do differently if i were because you know what i what i did wrong in, with, uh, and with this was called cyber, mission for Cyberstore. the only thing i did wrong was i based it after the games i like to play so at the time yep. i was playing a lot of tabletop games which were all turn-based and you know built around hex hexagram so you're you know could know what you're facing and so on yes and what i didn't realize is that what was going to blow up that same year was RTS so real-time strategy games where everybody's just kind of, you know, you know, Starcraft and all those where you're just kind of your little armies are doing their own thing and you can guide them and influence them and, you know, outfit them, but you're not controlling them turn by turn. So turn, turn turn-based games were very, very niche. They were, uh, you know, for old time gamers like me, they weren't for, you know, the the computer game audience was evolving so quickly um, because of, you know, the just advances in technology. Like you, PCs were then powerful enough to do a real-time game, yeah and I think that's one of the things like you know, so Warcraft and Starcraft those games just took off and kind of and kind of took over the market and I you know just before that, I had done another game, I was kidding Jeff about this because I had spent six months working on a prototype for a game that turned out to be exactly what Diablo turned out to be so again, an isometric game, you played a barbarian, you had a sword, you were dungeon crawling, you were killing stuff, and I was like, I'd put all this work into this game. Um, and I think it was called the Barbarian, but it was too close to Diablo, and so then when Diablo was announced, my game got killed. Yeah, right. That's
0: that's a bit of a shame, but I guess I, I guess it's one of those things. Probably even of the time where there was a lot of these sort of ideas bubbling to the surface, and there might have been a degree of who got there first.
1: Well, dude, that was that's the thing, right? So the the earlier you get into any industry, it's just it's just wide open. It's like yeah. there are so many, you know, because even Siphon Filter, yes, yeah, when it came out, you know, ten years later, it was one of the first um stealth action games so you know kojima had done metal gear and gold and i had come out you know the year before us and but still it was pretty wide open it's like you know For there sure. was no there was no SOCOM yet there was you know there was no tom clancy series sell, yeah. you know some of these games that kind of you know came and, and took over the genre later but yeah in those early days you could pitch a game and be the first of that kind and that would happen all the time er, early games were just all about innovation because hey how about this for an idea and they, it hadn't been done before and then you just the only thing the i wanted to point audience. out about dynamics by the way is just the, the, the rapid advent of technology so i mentioned that a little bit about the power of the pcs and how that kind of made it possible to do these more cpu intensive games But, dude, I remember the reason why uh, I was art director on Willie Beamish because I was just a pixel pusher on the original Willie Beamish PC game. But because we were given the opportunity to do a version for Sega and Sega wanted... Um, Product for this newfangled thing they had coming out called cd so the sega cd had you know the uh, that compact disc technology allowed you to have full animation full audio so we were able to take the woolly beamish ip and we were able to create an animated intro that was full animation and then you know full music and full voice audio for the whole game which is something the pc game could not have because it shipped on like Uh, twenty-three, three and a quarter discs. I remember, like, looking at a stack of these things and how long it took to install those on your PC. So, anyway, just the the just technology, CD-ROM technology, changed the way games were made. Um, in the in the early '90s, when I was, you know, right in the thick of it.
0: Yeah, and obviously we see we hear those same sorts of stories about, I guess, the more of the focus on kind of Nintendo versus PlayStation in that sort of era as well, and kind of the difference between the cartridge model versus versus what the the PS1 and CD's kind of opened up and that kind of pushed some developers and publishers in certain directions because of the capabilities that CD presented. Um, and so it's really fascinating to kind of hear the same sort of thing for a few years prior to that as well. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Were there any, I mean, obviously, as you say, the the creative opportunities were more or less boundless at that particular point in time, but were there any particular challenges of that period, because, maybe stemming from the fact that you've just got this wide open slate? Do you just kind of... I could go this path or maybe I'll go this path and you almost too much choice in a way. Was there, were there any of those
1: sort of concerns? No, I think, you know, I think I covered the big, the biggest challenge, which was, you know, trying to stay ahead of what other publishers were doing and not work on ideas that were too similar because that was a big thing. You just, you know, in those days you just really couldn't publish two games that were pretty similar to each other. It just kind of didn't happen. So something would get get killed, you know, and the problem that I think we had with dynamics, uh, the biggest issue they had was just marketing spins. They just didn't have it, right? So Dynamics didn't kind of have the money or they would buy a few magazine ads or whatever. But there's, you know, there's a huge fan base for their games now. But, you know, it's kind of one of the things Jeff told me. It's like, well, you know, it's like a lot of those games just didn't sell very well, right? So, yeah. you know, you're talking forty, fifty thousand 50,000 units of a game that took, you know, 200 people a couple of years to work on. That's not cheap. And so you would have, uh, you know, some of their games did really well, like Red Baron and some of the Flight sims. Um, and I don't have all the numbers, so I'm, I, you know, so no, of course. I may be I may be inaccurate on this, but my perception at the time was there just wasn't a lot of money, and there wasn't a lot of money to be made, and so budgets were really tight, salaries were really tight, and you know, and and I think Dynamics went through a couple of major layoffs. I survived two of them, uh, but didn't survive the third one. I mean, we're talking like going from a studio of 300 people and then suddenly it's down to 100 people. So, you know, that was a big problem in the in most in most studios early in the industry. It's even kind of a problem today with some yep. studios, right? Yeah, we so still we, hear about it. We'll, we'll ramp up and hire a bunch of people, chill, you know, get a game done, and then just kind of fire everybody. So that, you know, that was no fun watching my friends get fired, you know, twice. Um, Let alone
0: experiencing it, it yourself afterwards.
1: Yeah, so it's not, you know, that's not a pleasant part of, of the uh, game. In fact, I, just, I can't remember her name, but I just saw a video – uh, game to uh posted on twitter today All Where right. she's basically where she's basically and i'll send you a link to this later because it's pretty funny but she's basically complaining about everything that's still wrong with the game industry and so she's kind of talking to an audience about, like oh so you want to get into games do you want to build your life around the possibility of a layoff every year then join us such so, a yeah.
0: such a beautiful looking pitch it's so appealing
1: so, so those were probably the biggest challenges is it was just you know kind of a I don't know. It was a very volatile industry, let's just yeah. say. So there was a lot of a lot of high swings up and down.
0: Which was, I guess if you yeah. caught if you caught the swing at the right time, it was fantastic. But yeah, if you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, not so yeah, fortunate. Exactly. So how did things from there? Because the next step is Idetic or what eventually became um, Bend. How did yeah. that opportunity actually emerge for you?
1: So I was I was a director at dynamics and like i said i got not really laid off but more demoted because you know they kind of didn't want me just doing blue sky projects anymore again because of budget reasons right so they were yeah. they were cutting back everywhere they wanted me to kind of go back into more of a production role and you know take a take a salary cut and definitely a power cut And i'm like yeah i don't think i want to do that so um i just kind of looked around and, and a couple of people who used to work at uh at dynamics um, had moved to Iidetic um, mo- mostly Chris Reese who was the who's the current uh, um, studio head over there now yep and you know he and I hadn't really worked together but we kind of knew of each other and you know they kind of they kind of pointed to me and said hey you know we're looking for like an art director role so it was kind of a lateral move and it was a you know the same salary though which is kind of all I cared about at the time and yeah, it you wasn't stay that afloat, play, pay
0: the bills look after the family those sorts of things
1: <laughs> right I wanted, Well, I wanted to stay in Oregon, right? So I didn't really want to move to Seattle or, or L.A. or the Bay Area. And that's kind of where most games are happening. So, yeah. you know, having another studio in Oregon was kind of like, what? Really? So, because I didn't really follow IDIC, I didn't kind of know what they were doing. I would heard a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I just came over and they had just finished uh, Bubsy 3D, which, for the record, I had nothing to do with.
0: Sorry, I was <laughs> um, going to make sure to cite that myself. But, yep, yeah, uh, yeah, right, nothing to do with exactly.
1: it. Exactly. i keep having to say that and you know and god bless those guys by the way because if you've ever actually played bubsy 3d it's not as bad as the critics said it was it it literally just paled by comparison to crash bandicoot which took a completely different role so i mean you know bubsy was trying to do something way more innovative it wasn't on a rail it was a true open world they were trying to figure out true open world um, you know, tra- traversal mechanics and platforming mechanics. Well before um, the industry it,
0: ever worked it out.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, well before Mario. And it's like if you get, if you get into, you know, what they were doing, especially in some of the later levels. I wish they had started some of the later levels instead of the ones they, they shipped. Um, it's not a bad game. So anyway, <laughs> um, sidebar. But again,
0: everyone, John didn't work on it.
1: I did not want to work on it. And also they already had the concept of siphon filter. So when I was hired, they already had a working prototype. They had taken the Bubsy engine and, and they had created the um, the subway sequence. So they had subway cars going through. They had, you know, a version of Gabe Logan. They had the shooting mechanics set up. And Richard Hamm was the, cre- not the creator, but the lead guy on it. I mean, he really yeah. was the creator. So Sony had come to idetic with this idea. Just basically, I still have the one page pitch in my file that Very says cool. you know that yeah because it was just in the guy the guy who came up with the idea is a guy named david Grasha, who was uh he was the associate producer under connie booth at the time and he came up with this idea of like hey what about a spy game only well, you're you're the spy right so it's uh it's like golden eye but you're you know it's third person so you can actually see him you're running around you're doing spy moves and you're doing you know cool it's a, basically a cool spy fantasy and that was the pitch right so you know that's kind of when i was hired is like to, to kind of come on and art direct that project
0: i mean that top level pitch uh, is what won a lot of people over on the the consumer side as well
1: yeah exactly and you know it was i think the only thing that uh and this is another kind of innovation or maybe that's the wrong word but it's one of the things that happen in the game industry is that um, until that point, writing was just kind of not very important unless you were working like on, Lu- on a LucasArts side-scroller game. Yeah. right? Writing was super important in those games because it was all about the humor. But if you were doing action, arcade style games, writing just wasn't that important. And very it was perceived said, to just get in the way? What's that?
0: Because it was kind of perceived to almost get in the way of the core gaming, you know, the more gameplay-focused experience?
1: No, I think it was honestly just because there was not a there wasn't room for it. Yeah, Yeah. so you're right. Yeah, so it was just like, hey, you know what, we're, you know, we've got, um, we don't have a lot of money for cutscenes, for example, so we'll have a few box text, text, you know, text paragraphs in boxes. And, you know, and Siphon Filter did some of that too, but, you know, for the first time, you kind of had, you know, you could kind of do with the advent of motion capture, which is when that was really taken off, um, it became possible to do um, cinematics for a pretty reasonable price. So you could do, you could do a little bit of storytelling right and that's kind of what happened with with siphon filter so that's how i honestly that's how i stepped into the creative director role was two things one i could write so i did ended up writing all the cinematics and creating most of the characters and doing all the dialogue for for the first siphon filter and every one after but also i was a designer so uh, you know i was a 3d guy so i you know i had learned um, 3d studio max um, while i was still at dynamics and I could build and did build half the levels in Siphon Filter 1. I mean, I literally built them in mesh and then worked with Man um, a talents. designer to, to make them fun, right? So just being able to, you know, half of, half of being a designer in those days was just being a level designer. Just being able yep. to, like, you know, create a space that was fun to climb around in, shoot bad guys in, or whatever. So the ability to kind of visualize those and create them um, was kind of one of the things that made it possible for... You know me to to write and direct.
0: No, that's 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 really really cool, and obviously, yeah, as, as you say, and the teams are smaller at the time, so there's people across. I think just as a result, there's people across more disciplines back in the time. But yeah, to have that those that combination of skill sets under your belt really served you well from that point on.
1: Yeah, that was that was actually kind of like you know to take back everything I said about it not being about luck. In that case, it really is kind of about being lucky. It's like just being at a you know in an industry. That was starting to discover they needed more writers and I could write in an industry that needed more and more three D and I had learned three D and you know, it's just just being in the right place at the right time.
0: But I guess like still I guess even to counter all of that, like you still have to develop those skills in the first place and you put in the hard work to get to that point and without that it's the luck true. doesn't emerge. So I guess it's this weird cyclical thing, I suppose. Yeah. There's a degree of making your own luck, there's a degree of yeah, it there's it, it, all degrees. We were way too deep into that because we could go for hours just getting into the philosophies around all of that. So, with uh, in that through that period, I suppose we saw seven different siphon filter titles um, across PS1, PS2, PSP. How do you look back upon that franchise now, or well, you know years removed, and obviously no no longer with Ben slash um How do you look back upon that period and? I mean, was there were there ideas for for another Gabe Logan adventure that never, never quite emerged that you would have loved the opportunity to but didn't quite get to do it or anything like that?
1: Yeah, you know, so it uh, uh, you know another big change in the uh, in the game industry that's affected pretty much everyone, not just games, is just you know it's just the internet, right? So yep. it's like when I was working on when I was working on Siphon Filter all those years, even up through the PSP. Um, the internet really was just kind of still taking off, and the impact that it had on, on game developers is just direct access to fans, right? Yes. So I'm, I'm still not even as popular as, you know, some of the big guys that, you know, like if, you, if, you, if you're looking at like a David Jaffe or a Corey Barlog or any of those guys, they have hundreds of thousands of followers, right? Yes. Um, and I've got like seven. But part of those seven thousand followers are diehard hard Filter fans. Yes. So you know, just being able to like have direct contact with fans, you know, something that other media have always had. Like if you're a, if you're any kind of a celebrity in music or in film, film, even in novels, right? You have you have signings. You have fan conventions. and all Dude, games doesn't do that for whatever reason. It's like, and it's something I've been, it's one of the things we should talk about later, but Michael Mungauer and I decided when we were going to do Lethose that, you know, we wanted direct access to the gamers. We don't want, you know, a curtain that's drawn up by a PR team who says, no, 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 you can't talk to people. They don't know, they can't know who you are. The only thing that's important is the game, not the person making the game. And I was just like, no bullshit. <laughs> the, the thing because these games don't make themselves. It's like yeah. I want to know more about, you know. That's what I've always loved about Kojima because he's out there and he's talking about his stuff because he's the creator of it. And um <clears throat> dude, as a creator, Cyberpunk filter. I never had that. I never had access to fans. I never knew how popular it was. So based on you know the sales i guess
0: yeah we get to make more so presumably it must be doing okay people must like it
1: right so you know so so the owners of Identik did pretty well when when, when Simon Filter sold a couple million units
0: yeah of um, because
1: and that was dude, that was the other thing i wanted to say jumping back to uh, dynamics days is the other big difference between then and now is just team size yeah right when I, so when i worked on bouncers the basketball game you mentioned that was the brainchild of uh, Randy Thompson and Rhett Anderson. They were these were two guys who had started by um, being editors at Compute Magazine, and they were the ones who sort of wrote a lot of those those small games that you could uh, print out and program yourself. And they had created this game called uh, Bill and Ed's Basketball Adventure or something. And then when we turned that into Bouncers, dude. It was it was literally like a four man team, and I was a one man art team. I not only did oh. every I not only did every single cinematic. Cause it was another Sega CD title, but I did all the ball animations. I did all the ball art. I did in airbrush and then scanning it in. I did all the basketball parts, yeah. um, you know, and I, dude, I even did the box cover for Sega. So it's like every single part of that game was like a one man art show. And it's like, you can't do that anymore. Games no. are just too big, too complex. And even, even uh siphon filter was a team of like 12 guys. And one gal. Yeah, and no, how and absolutely.
0: how did I guess by the time everyone had moved on to I guess the next title after all the after the Siphon Filter titles was uh, Resistance Retribution at that point. But I mean, how how large had the team gotten by the time you got to that
1: last Siphon Filter title? We, roughly, dude, we were we were still hovering around 20, 25 guys. Yeah, so that's why we were, that's why we were doing handheld games because our team size was was just still pretty small. The scope, and you know at the time it was just you know it, at the time PS two and then PS three games were blowing up and you know you know teams like naughty dog and sucker punch and insomniac those guys had 100 150 people right And we were still hovering around 30 so there was just no way that that we felt like we could compete so we wanted to be the best handheld company that we could and then we were kind of given a chance to do you know something more than that when um you know because chris and i were were on the original um, design board for the for the PlayStation Vita yep. so you know we were there on during all those first whiteboard meetings when the tech team was presenting their ideas for it and you know so you know so that's when we had our chance to do a real because at the end of the day Vita games were as complex in terms of the processing power and the need for assets as a PS3 game yeah, and sure. maybe a lot of people don't realize that but Uncharted Golden Abyss was literally kind of the equivalent of making a PS3 game. And so by that point, we'd ramped up to, I don't remember the exact numbers, something like 40, 45, 50 guys and gals. And it was just like, that was a, um, that you know, it was, it was getting to be the point where it was a big team and it was going to be, you know, a real challenge to manage it.
0: And so, I guess, and we may end up, as you say, cycling back to it when we start talking about Lithos, but um, I guess the, the, the putting the people out there, the the faces of the company, whether it's, I mean, yourself and Michael these days or yourself and others back you know, back you know through through the earlier stages of Eidetic and Bend. I mean, do you think that PR and the curtain that you talk about, I mean, is that maybe because there's that concern of kind of the tall poppy syndrome sort of effect that comes out? I mean, certainly, like, that's something that... I, I, look, it could it could be a particular problem in other parts of the world too but certainly it's something that over here in our australian sort of culture there there's a lot of tall poppy syndrome there's you know if you start to kind of rise above the rest there's always very very quickly and we see it in our sports which is i think where we really kind of the stark contrast between i think the australian culture versus say the u.s culture really is 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 apparent as in sport over um for us because dude
1: i've, I've heard about this thing in in australia so i don't really think get it's taken off at the yeah, because I, you know, it's like I've, I can't remember which. Uh, oh, it was this this gal I was talking to that I met at a convention. This is like ten years ago, and she was talking about this exact same thing. She's like, "Oh, well, you've had your moment in the sun, you know. It's time to like take step back and let somebody else have theirs, right?" It's that kind of thing. I don't think that's really what's going on with the game industry. I think here I'll give you a, a crazy um, theory, and I think it is. You know, I don't think it's as crass as you know they don't want you to become well known because they're afraid you know other teams are going to come in and hire you away although i do think that's part of it that's that's right? a possibility. So I, I definitely think that there's kind of a, a team first altruism that is, that they kind of that they kind of feel right like hey you know no and this is true no game is made by one guy or gal it's made very by, rarely you know, anymore yeah, that's for sure yeah but you know but i promise you that if if, it, if the death stranding could not happen without kojima and if you've got a game that cannot exist without the creative visionary behind it. And I've talked to David Jaffe a little bit about this too, by the way. So he created the first God of War. All the ideas for what God of War was, and the same thing with Twisted Metal, those all came from David Jaffe. They didn't come from the team. They came from that guy. Yeah, they, you know, the team and, around him might be fantastic. Fact, but... most, I also know for a fact that most of the ideas that became The Last of Us came from Neil Druckmann. Yeah. Right, and most of the ideas that that became uncharted came from Amy Hennig. I mean, we're talking like individuals who are creative, who have ideas, and you know deserve that right. But you know they're the equivalent of a Spielberg in the in the in the movie industry, or or my current favorite, Jordan Peele. Right? It's like, dude, Peele is a genius. He's a creative genius because he has ideas, and he's got a very specific vision, and he gets it done. And I think the game industry, for whatever reason, is afraid of that. I don't know why. Um, I can tell you my uh, my example from another field I'm a huge fan of Carl Barks. Have you ever heard of Carl Barks?
0: I know the name, but I can't say that I know, know much more than that, unfortunately.
1: So Carl Barks worked at Western Publishing doing Disney Comics from 1942 until he retired in 1965. And if you know anything about the comics history, especially in the U.S., it's like comics was the medium in the 50s, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. 40s and 50s, it was comics, and then it became TV, and then, you know, and so on. But, man, in the 50s, so he invented Uncle Scrooge. You know, he invented Huey, Dewey, and Louie. He invented – he was at the at the Disney um, cartoon, the, the studio working on the cartoons when Donald Duck was invented. So the guy was a creative genius. And at the time, at his peak, he sold – like, I think Walt Disney's Comics and Stories sold 5.6 million copies a month in like 1955 and that's That's just insignificant
0: number that's huge
1: it you know who charles schultz is right yes you know it's like so it so the thing the difference between comic books and comic strips is that the strips all kept ownership of their properties so you know charles schultz owned peanuts he had you know they couldn't sell his his they couldn't sell products or anything without his permission carl barks had none of that in fact carl barks could not even sign his name to his own comics Walt Disney's name was signed on every single one of his comic books. So nobody ever heard of him. And they didn't, they didn't, they didn't kind of discover who he was until after he retired and started doing these oil paintings that are, you know, now selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But anyway, to me, that's kind of what's going on in the game industry today is there's a kind of a forced anonymity that I think makes it, you know, I'll just be honest. It makes it so they don't have to pay people as much. (laughs) It makes, it makes it so that, you know, it, you, you might be right. It might be the, the, the too tall poppy syndrome, but I think it's also just not wanting to deal with, you know, the egos of stars, you know, the trying, the, you know, the trying, uh, Jason Rubin gave this, I don't know if you know who he is. He's one yep, of the yep, r- yep. Early founders of, he, dude, he gave a great speech at Dice a few years ago where, and this is to a room full of marketing people. He says, you know, if, a, if two planes crash today and one of them is full of marketing people, I'm still going to be able to make this game. If the plane is full of devs and it crashes, guess it's what? We can't, we can't make this game. So, you know, the problem with the game industry, and I think this is true today, is that they, you know, they treat games as if they're packaged goods. Like there's no difference between, you know, days gone and and a bar of soap. It's like we we treat it that way, we market it that way, we think of it that way. You know, it doesn't take a doesn't take a creative person to make a bar of soap. All yeah. it takes is a warehouse full of people working for minimum wage, and we got yeah. the recipe right. Let's make it. Let's make all the bars the mass produce game. it at that point. <laughs> yeah, so it's,
0: it's, it's I, a very different kettle so, of fish, really.
1: So, so yeah, that's kind of one of the things that Michael Mumbar and I are trying to address with Lethos, and some other game companies have done it too. So I'm not saying we're unique or original in, the, in this way, but definitely wanting to, you know, what other whatever other games um, Lethos ends up making, I just hope they we really can find a way to make um to make it possible for people who are super creative to come into this space and do something original yeah. and get recognition for it
0: yeah it's, it's an interesting one like i even think i guess through the through the lens of my show and i'm you know trying to talk to developers from through all around the industry and again i mean the nature of what we're doing right now thankfully the majority of uh, of people that I've gotten on the show, PR has not been in the way and there hasn't been that kind of veil tried to put over. I mean, maybe maybe there's always the, hey, are we able to focus on the current product or a little bit, you know, that sort of thing, which I can understand if there's a time and place and those sort of things, but then you can kind of see the tendrils of marketing in there. But
1: And I just want to uh, reemphasize how I started this thread, which is by saying I don't think there's anything malicious at all, right? So, you know, in case, you know, some somebody in the gaming press is looking for clickbait headlines. Yeah, don't interpret it any other way. Yeah, it's like, dude. No, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with any PR team. I think they're doing their job. Um, I don't think anybody's maliciously getting in the way of you know gamers being able to rise up and become a well-known name for their product. I, yeah. I don't think that. I don't think it's deliberate. I think it's endemic and systemic, and it's just something people aren't thinking enough about.
0: Yeah, I think. That, I mean, you know, we're not. We don't need to put everyone on that gigantic pedestal. But to acknowledge the effort is, I think, really, really important. And that's um, something I'd personally like to see more of. And it's it's great to see what you know, yourself and Michael are doing there in that space with all the, the glitz and glamour production value into, into the photos and those sorts of things. But uh Right. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this sort of stuff to kind of promote the people is really important.
1: But, you know, dude, you're absolutely right. So the thing about the photos is something – this is Michael and I had a big talk about this because – and, I, you know, I definitely see his point of view because, I, again, I remember – in EA in the early days when EA was first publishing electronic arts and they had these, the equivalent of like a, a, an album cover is how they ship their discs. Right. And if you open it up, there was all the, you know, dev teams were really small back then. So eight guys, you know, and maybe, maybe a gal or two and they're all dressed up and they're all looking very severe and, you know, they're looking like, uh, like rock stars. And it's, you know, so I guess it's kind of a long winded way of me saying that I'm as responsible as anybody else for how, game developers are perceived because we kind of we kind of reject any kind of celebrity we kind of reject any any idea that we should be held in any you know like we're not stars and we and we and we look like assholes or we feel like assholes if if we stand up uh, with a a suit on devs don't wear suits devs wear you know jeans and t-shirts that's what we do yeah you know so in a a weird way though i think that's what also kinds of keep kind of keeps the devs in a place where they don't have that recognition because you know who gets all the recognition are the guys who wear the suits, wear the right? Suits. So if you're yeah, so if you're like on the business end of things and, you know, you're controlling the money, then you become the guy who controls, you know, what products are getting made and so on. And so that's kind of where all the power ends up is on the guys wearing the suits as opposed to the guys wearing the the jeans and T shirt. I think a really good example of this is what happened at, at apple right with steve jobs versus yep. um Woznoski, right so it's like you have like the the tech dev guy who's responsible for you know how amazing the hardware is and you got steve jobs who's really good at selling it so and I who don't. do
0: most people think of they think of steve jobs for all that obviously steve, was is really yeah. quite notable for so many different reasons but steve jobs is the one that kind of bubbles to the top yeah. and people think about first which yeah exactly. i think i think you're 100 percent right it's about how there's a bit of the how you present and or who is presented and what that kind of skill set they have that kind of plays a big part in the whole thing. But um, yeah. cycling back to, obviously, your work before before we kind of move on to Lithos and more of some of the, the current day stuff, there's, there's a little bit more in uh, in the bend era that we need to continue to discuss here. As I mentioned, uh, seven different Syphon Filter titles across multiple different platforms. You touched on the, the Vita there, which is obviously where Uncharted, Golden Abyss was um, released. There was Resistance Retribution along the way and obviously at this point you've you've worked on multiple titles from your own franchise there and have presumably had a fantastic time doing so. You don't make seven games without ha- in a franchise without having a bit of love for it. Um, what was it like when Resistance Retribution kind of, the opportunity for that, or what became Resistance Retribution kind of emerged and you're working on someone else's IP all of a sudden? How did that come about?
1: Well, it was kind of the opposite, actually. So we were working on, the team was still finishing up um logan shadow and you know we kind of knew that. at least i knew that it was going to be the last side and filter game like i wasn't going to do another side and filter and you know and to be honest i don't you know it's seven games is a lot of games for a franchise it's like at some point you're really going to start repeating yourself and you're going to run out of ideas and you know it's just you need to let it you kind of let it need to uh Rest for a while, rest. and you know maybe someday somebody will revitalize it and bring back. Because I would love to see a and filter with today's technology, to be honest. No clickbait um,
0: articles, people.
1: I know, right? Well, it won't be it won't be me because yeah. I'm busy doing asphalt. Well. But somebody should because it's because again, I think the stealth action genre is an amazing genre, and we did a lot with it over seven games. But while the while the team was finishing that up, uh, you know, the core creative team had been. We all kind of got together and said, and you know, I, I can't remember whose idea. It might have been my idea. To say, you know, we should definitely try to take another established Sony franchise and see if we can bring that to the PSP, right? Yeah. So, because that way, you know, it's a market and it's a way, it's a, you know, something that I think Sony would need. And if you have, an, a, it, it, because I think at the time, I don't remember the details on the marketing side, but I think at the time PSP games, especially bigger budget ones were kind of struggling. Yeah. Piracy was a huge deal. I mean, we were losing a lot of money to piracy at the time um it had or the the platform had already been cracked
0: yeah wide open and it was wild west
1: yeah dude it was like in fact i remember trying to convince uh i can't remember who it was but just you know i remember looking at a torrent site and whichever one of our titles had like 200,000 simultaneous cool. downloads it's just crazy you know people don't realize what an impact piracy has on development because you know, dude, it's, it's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that's lost to your next budget because you're not, you just didn't, you know, you didn't make enough money to justify spending that much on a game. That's what happens. So, anyway, having having an established franchise so you don't have to do a bunch of marketing spend to try to convince people what this is. Yeah. Everybody knew what Resistance was at that time. Um, I think they were, yeah, they were working on Resistance 2, but re- Resistance 1 had already come out. It was a pretty big hit. And, yep, you know, after three. I remember really loving resistance one mostly because of the way they handled you know the presentation right i loved all the newsreel stuff and the world war Two look and feel of the thing um i remember not being that impressed by the by the story right because it seemed like kind of a bland hey you know a sort of bald shaved juggernaut dude and you know he's just kind of one yeah i don't remember that much about it but i definitely remember pitching this we created an actual playable prototype that was like using the logan shadow engine and creating a chunk of what looked like a european city and we had like one of those big mech things running around that you had to shoot and a chimera i think and you know a, oh a drop ship we had a drop ship yep. kind of come in as an animated sequence in real time so it was pretty impressive it looked like resistance i mean you know, I, fit- I still
0: I, look back upon that game really fondly myself i it wasn't oh it would have only been in the last year or so that i that i played through it and I mean, I see rumblings. No, I guess we can kind of touch on this as well. I see rumblings that it might be coming to the PlayStation Plus Deluxe service. I think it was rated somewhere overseas at one point. Now, obviously, there's no official confirmation beyond that, but it's certainly yeah, uh, I have no raised idea. the hopes I saw, and dreams of plenty of people. Right? Well, um, I saw
1: I saw a YouTube video somebody posted recently about you know pra- praising the game and all that, but I watched part of it and it's, you know it's kind of cringeworthy to me because we were still hampered by you know severe production issues in terms of budget and all that. Right? So, yeah. man, some of the VO is not great. I remember I remember reading an article a couple of years after it came out and you know because you know, again, I wrote it wrote it just like I did everything else. Um, and some of the writing is just not that great in it either. It's like I mean,
0: uh, improvement. Right?
1: Dude, I remember getting uh I remember getting blasted by this one critic who said, you know, they were writing it writing about it on a uh, in terms of a much larger discussion, but basically um I was sort of guilty and spoiler alert, I was sort of guilty of one of the worst tropes there is in science fiction writing, which is turn your girlfriend into an alien and then kill her you know that's a that's kind of a thing that happens yeah, in games yeah, i suppose a lot right so it's a true you know i didn't even think i wasn't even thinking of it in those terms back in the day i yeah, was just of trying to like, fit the story you know, i was yeah. just trying to say what's what's the most surprising twist we can have you know or whatever and unfortunately that's kind of where most writers come down it's like yeah. you know let's 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 turn your girlfriend into an alien and then force you to kill her so that was that was that wasn't great, dude. That was not one of my finer moments writing wise. Um, but dude, yeah, it's like I think the uh, I think it was a, a surprise to our uh, our bosses at Sony at the time because we we kind like I said we did it with a very small team and we were just like, hey, you know what? What if we do this? And so, you know, I think it, it impressed everybody enough to say, yeah, we could totally do that. So that's how Resistance Retribution was born.
0: I mean, were they. Were kind of on the on the executive level were they pretty happy for you, for you to move on to something else at that point or like I mean was was everyone kind of meeting at the same point that okay' you're you're, you're saying that we need to do something other than cipher filter the the creative well has maybe been exhausted at least for now um and Sony's looking okay we've got this new franchise resistance it's doing well we've got a sequel on the way we can have this portable um tie-in title I mean was everyone kind of meeting at the same no. point there were there other franchises explored before you got to resistance or was No, so I, you
1: know, and to be honest, I don't honestly know or remember much about the business side of things because even by that point, even though Chris and I were still sort of co-directors of the studio, Chris had taken over all the business stuff, right? So he was the one that was working with you know Connie and those guys on the numbers and hey, is this going to be profitable? How you know, it's like all that stuff. It's like I was thankfully kind of shielded from it, so I could focus on the creative. Creative. So I honestly don't know. All I remember for sure though is that yeah, I don't know if they were you know if we were thinking we had to get off a of siphon because it was tanking so much as we wanted to get off a of siphon because if we could do something new you know everybody was looking forward to that right. I mean, in it some ways, yeah in some ways resistance retribution is kind of one of my favorite games because it was the first time you know in in a in more than a decade that I got to do something that was kind of more science fiction and we had enough budget to be able to do you know some cinematics that that were pretty good and character development it wasn't yep. all just action sequences so the last science fiction game I had done was mission Four Cyberstorm, which was that, uh, isometric strategy yeah, game.
0: As we mentioned before, and, yeah.
1: you know, there was, there was, that was such a low budget game. It's like, you know, there was, it it cost almost nothing to make that game. And so having, you know, being, and the ability to having work on a new budget. franchise was just huge. It was so, you know, insomniac, I don't remember them giving us a bunch of help, but I definitely know we got, we, we found a couple of ways to tie into, um, uh, resistance 2 i think it was on it was ps3 i think it was
0: ps3 yeah yeah it was resistance 2 on the ps3 because there was that kind of tech crossover like the infected mode we got to do some
1: tech crossover stuff that was kind of fun so it was it was a fun project to work on
0: no that's that's really really cool so was it a similar sort of story with the uncharted collaboration and i mean obviously not sci-fi i mean beginning with that of course but um how, how did well, that? Again, without without going into player. too many
1: details, because it's, because at some point I want to talk to Sony and see if I can get permission to really go into detail about you know all of the all the projects that we pitched that didn't get picked up and all that. Yeah. And you know, I, and I kind of learned my lesson um, when I did the because I for Gamma Sutra I had done a postmortem on on Uncharted and you know and we were pretty candid about some of the things we had worked on and dude it just gets picked up as headlines right so. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely, at least at this stage, I don't want to talk about any of that stuff because I would need a headline that that says, you know, maybe Ben's studio is working on this because Garvin said they worked on this. Dude, I'm just very wary of that now. So I typically don't talk about things that haven't been in the news before. So, but but I can definitely tell you that no, Uncharted was, you know, we were given a choice of like three or four things and I don't remember specifically what the other ones were, but we definitely felt like Uncharted was, and, and I still believe this today, is kind of um, Sony PlayStation's premier product. Like, you know, like yes. Naughty Dog is kind of their Pixar and Uncharted and the, and the stuff Amy was doing at the time and then Neil later on. It's just, you know, pretty pretty solid storytelling oh, and, and innovation. Maybe not innovation, but definitely production values, big set pieces, character development. I mean, it's just, it was really, really, a really a good franchise to be working in.
0: And so obviously you mentioned the case of um resistance and insomniac the the level of interfacing wasn't massive was that more or less the case for um uncharted as well with naughty dog or was there a little bit more back and forth when it came to to that title
1: There was a little more back and forth in fact uh you know again i've said this publicly before so you know i don't mind saying it again it's like amy Hennig was a huge influence on me personally because i had been a writer in games for a long time at that point um but not at amy's caliber so you know so again some of the things that i learned from amy were you know just you know so she had she she had lots of comments on the script and you know helped out with key parts of that but you know all but also just on the production side like so she was there to help with casting and you know because again we were always at least i was always thinking more budget-minded and not quality-minded and you know amy was the first to really kind of show me that man, if you want to play with the big boys, you got to spend the big bucks a little bit. Got, yeah. Well, you just got to, you got to think differently. You got to think about the quality of what you're doing. And so that meant, you know, you know, number one, we had Nolan North, right. But Nolan was there at the casting process. So when we're yeah. casting the actress who was going to become chase um, and we got a fantastic actress and, you know, he basically read with them and we had three or four candidates and, you know, he helped us pick out the actress that we went with. I mean, that process is just immensely helpful for creating great chemistry between your characters and so on. Same thing for the villain, right? So, um, you know, so when we got Jason Spiesack to come in and read with Nolan, you know, again, that's just the spark sort of flew. So, you know, so the casting part of it, Amy was heavily involved in um choosing the director she was pretty heavily involved because i you know it's like i've directed every game since but i didn't direct the cinematics we hired um a you know a qualified director for that and she was turned out to be really good and so i watched her do it and then realized oh i could do this so but amy also you know gave like i said gave pointers on the script and you know just the overall naughty dog process for how they create story and And there's a lot to
0: learn from that i'm sure i mean obviously yeah the caliber of amy of course but um but even that, yeah, that process. There's a lot that you can kind of take from that, having been small scale for such a long time.
1: Um, yeah, Naughty Dog in yeah. general is just very supportive, right? So we, we came to them with a couple of different pitches, um, you know, and the uh, and you know one of them got accepted, obviously. But you know they were supportive the whole way. It's like they really love the idea of having uh, a version of their game on a handheld. So that was it. Was it was fun.
0: One that is again looked back upon very very fondly. I must say. I thoroughly enjoyed it i mean i got my vita day one and jumped onto uncharted immediately obviously looking on with envy because the the japanese market had it a little bit before the rest of us um just with the timing of the the system launch but
1: had had a great time with it what was the critical reaction in australia like because
0: of the the Vita or the game itself on the game itself i mean i I feel like it mirrored other other parts of the west as well i i I can't say that i heard anything like necessarily more well, positive good. or more negative or anything like that i feel like it was fairly well in line from I did, a, uh,
1: I did a i did a post-mortem on it for an internal internal group and the biggest finding that i came away with just after all this research and it was just kind of stark it was that every almost every single european press loved the gimmicks the touchscreen the camera the light all that stuff they loved it the u.s press, almost every single one of them hated
0: criticized it. the gimmicks
1: Yeah, they didn't like the Vita parts of it. They loved the Uncharted parts. They thought it should have just been an Uncharted game without the Vita parts. And I always, you know, even at launch, I always said, dude, we're not just making an Uncharted game, we're making a Vita game. So it's like, to me, it just kind of never, you know, and maybe if I had it to do over again, maybe the game would have gotten a higher score had we just done a Vita game or an Uncharted game and not tried to do all the Vita stuff. So there is a definite kind of uh, argument to be had there about whether, you know, you should tailor an existing franchise for you know a new platform market, or whether yeah. you should be true to the franchise so I don't know I could be it's persuaded interesting... either way I was just curious how Australia came down
0: I, I mean for myself personally I, I mean I as I said I, I loved the game um I loved a lot of the Vita functionality I think the one that kind of and it was it wasn't even a major gripe because I was still playing it in the right circumstances but I, I could see how it would potentially be a challenge for some people was uh, some of the the light the the use of light mechanics there um yeah. I think that might have been I mean, and that's purely down to how people might play. If they're playing it, you know, in pitch black and all of a sudden you need light, maybe that's maybe that's a bit more of a challenge. But um for myself, like I think I distinctly recall playing that on my ex girlfriend's couch. Um and it was broad daylight. I think she was working at the time and I got to kick back and play and well, there was no issues in broad daylight sorting my uh, finding a light source. So, I was just, okay, boom, here we go, done, and off, and we kind of we move on. But I could I could understand how others might, again, situationally say, "Oh, that's actually quite frustrating or tedious or annoying or whatever, the, whatever language they might want to use."
1: I, I get it, but you know, I definitely remember the reviewer who said, "I was on an airplane and I had to look like an asshole <laughs> because I had to hold my you know my Vita up to the light." I'm what like, are you doing dude, playing an
0: embargo no, game one,
1: on a plane? It's one moment in a big game, and it's like. I thought that moment was kind of cool it's like okay you know because it's a trope that you know from fantasy and in other genres yeah. it's like you have to hold the parchment up to the light and you actually got to do that see something and you'll see something that you wouldn't see otherwise so it, to me that's a perfect marriage of of the hardware and what it's capable of doing in a gameplay idea so
0: yeah i mean I stand, I, like i said i, I quite liked it
1: that one. <laughs>
0: yeah I, I quite liked it and um again didn't didn't impact me in the slightest but again i'll say to that reviewer what are you doing playing that embargo game on a on a flight Exactly. That's a whole other thing that we could <laughs> wade into at some point. But the next step from there is Days Gone. Now, the, the gap in, I guess, uh, launches between Days Gone and then Uncharted being the previous work was, was quite a long one, but uh, you're obviously scaling up um, in terms of what the team was trying to create. It was you know this big PS4 title that size and scope was kind of matching and in, in a lot of ways exceeding a lot of the its, its contemporaries. But what was that like? I guess at a time where we'd heard rumblings before the game was formally announced of a, uh, as I believe it was referred to in some circles, "Dead Don't Ride." And and, yeah. and um, what was what was that like as you were kind of developing the core ideas, the core pillars that would ultimately become Days Gone?
1: Well, again, dude, it, it's a it's a, it of all the games I've worked on, it was the one that went through the most evolutionary changes from the concept until the final ship product yeah, and most of that six years the first half of that six years was spent literally kind of trying to figure out and here's the good news for for you in this show is that I've, I've already talked about almost all of this right so there's a lot of material out there so again i'm really conscious about not revealing new behind the scenes stuff yeah. but we, but jeff and i jeff ross um you know we did a huge um art, or a series of articles and interviews dude we've talked about this ad nauseum so I'll see if I can find something, some something new to throw in somewhere. But I'll basically, that. Yeah, it, it, it's like so. One of the things that I think was released a few years ago is uh, footage of the game, kind of the horde working on the Vita, right? So originally, yeah. this was going to be a Vita game, and so we had this idea for, you know, I think the original pitch was Sons of Anarchy meets uh, meets World War Z. That was the original pitch, and then you know, kind of throw in a little bit of Walking Dead because these were, you know, you know, and again, I know some early critics accused us of, you know, bandwagging. But man, when we when we were you know first started working on these, these were still pretty new ideas, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, and the horde is still something other games haven't done. Not really. Not the same way we did, right? So having this concept of having an enemy type that is literally, and especially in a third person shooter, I know some isometric games have done this idea, but just you know managing a large group of enemies and how do you do that in an open world? Um, you know that was a, a challenge that I think the team did a really really good job on is pulling that off but man, we had that idea back on the Vita. So it was, you know, so originally it was gonna be a super ambitious Vita title. And then, you know, Chris and the producers managed to convince um, Sony. And I think this is the way it went down. Again, I'm not on the business side of things, but I think it was, I think that's the way it went down. It's like, hey, you know what, this could be our chance because the, and this is kind of what happened with with the success of, of Golden Abyss is that I think we were kind of given a shot. It's like, hey, you know what? you guys can obviously make a great game and you can do some really innovative things. So give Ben studio a shot at doing a PS4 game. Yep. And I think that's kind of how it and, then it, and then it kind of evolved from that. So a lot of that first three years was just ramping up and, you know, Chris was on the board at, at uh, Epic. So he was like, um, you know, on their technical, re- on their re- yeah, for unreal. So we, you know, we, we were one of the first and early adopters of some of the new technology they were rolling out for unreal four Um, but then Chris had had this entire tech team that literally rewrote most of the rendering for unreal. So, you know, that's why the game looks as good, looks as good or better than any of the big budget games. Right. So we had, but again, dude, we did all of this con with, I think for the first four years, we had 50 people working on that title. So a lot of support with, you know, Sony's other groups, but still it's a very small team. They had a very ambitious project. And, you know, honestly it, you know, it killed a lot of us. It's like, you know, like, I really enjoy what I do, so I end up working overtime all the time, right? So yeah. I end up working crunch. Um, but you know, a lot of you know, but a lot of people, you know, that's they, they can't do that anymore. It's like, you know, so, so we talked about you know where was the game industry twenty five years ago when I started? I'll tell you where it is now. There's a lot of developers with families and you know lives that change the face of development. They don't want they don't want to live to make a game. And you know, when I was coming up, it was a lot of crunch. And it was kind of demanded and, you know, it wasn't ever like, hey, you know, you're going to be forced to do this, but it was, you know, we have to get a game out or this company's going to fold, right? It was that kind of pressure all the time. And, I, yeah. you know, I kind of lived with that pressure for 25 years and, you know, and I think hopefully that's changing, right? So that people can have, can have families in right. lives and not, yeah, and not, you know, and not have to worry about, oh my God, it's so much pressure to get this game out. So yeah, so six years, long time to be in the cooker on that game. And, you know, well, by the time we shipped it, we still had issues that we hadn't kind of solved, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the thing that that I'm the most responsible for in terms of development is that we've never done an open-world game before. So, like I said, Jeff Ross was the game director and helped really sort of flesh out what the, what the game experience was going to be, you know, how the bike was going to ride, how yes. the combat was going to play, how the horde fights were going to go, all that stuff. And it just took, you know, it's a systems-based game. So it took... More than three years just to get the systems online. Yeah, we couldn't really start building and polishing the game until almost like an, a year and a half before we shipped. Most that of that time was building the world and building the systems. Yeah, so all those systems
0: was, have to actually coalesce in a really cohesive, meaningful yeah, way first.
1: So the core experience is you're on your bike, you're out in the world, and you've got, you know, a dynamic weather system that's going to impact. You've got the time of days that's going to impact. You've got the, you know, the freaker populations that, you know, you've got marauders and the traps they set. And you're not going to experience Days Gone unless all those things are in and working. Yeah. right and then the dynamic events like hey you know uh, a mutated bear is going to attack you or you know a breaker is going to come in and it's attacking the bear and then you know they, they drag that into a marauder camp it's like these systems are all dynamic and they're all working at the same time but it's not the same experience if any one of them is broken or if any one of them it all falls apart you. yep and the same it's thing that with Deacon, cards idea. His ability. so his ability to ride the bike to use shotguns to do melee to do stealth actions all those things have to be kind of in and working too, or you don't have the sandbox part of the combat system. The so you yeah. got to be able to. Every system has to be in and working, and then once you get all that, oh my god, how much time does it take to tune it and make it fun? And then you add on top of that the progression systems, right? So, you know, and these are the things that I think maybe you know, had we had more time, we could have we could have polished a little more. There was definitely some pacing issues that I that I felt like it took too long to get into the story. Yeah, we tried to fix we tried to fix a few of those. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the at the end of the day, um, and I think Jeff said this in one of his interviews, if you if it takes you 60 hours to get through the core experience, as a developer, you're just not going to have that many playthroughs. Right. It's almost yeah, like, sticking, it's, sticking almost like yeah, it's almost like if you're playing you know professional football, how many touches do you get? Right. How many how many chances does your team have to touch the ball and therefore score? and if you it's all about that it's so it's like if you don't have if, if you can only play through the game five or six times as you're trying to final it dude that's just not enough that's not enough yeah. time man. that's the problem with these big long games is it just takes so much time to play through it let alone make notes give those to the team refine have them go changes, back do it again have them have them make sure that the changes didn't break something else right yeah. iteration time is just crazy for a game like this
0: so obviously that's kind of the internal critiquing that goes on at the time and as you're continuing to kind of refine and develop the product itself. And then there's the external one when the game actually launches. And I mean, the game launched to a, I don't know, what? how do we want to describe it? A mixed, mixed to positive response. Um overall I'd say,
1: was, I'd say it was pretty negative overall wouldn't you i mean oh, like i guess the little circles that i was like
0: in a... i knew of one person personally that was kind of in and so at this point personally i was already in kind of the reviewing scene myself and i was fortunate enough to have access to the game pre-launch and and i, I was pretty positive on the whole thing i did know someone who was who was um, quite the opposite and i was trying to pick their brain about it before the, the review embargo dropped you know am i am i seeing that you're something that you're not seeing is it the opposite is there a middle ground here what you know we're trying to wade through it a little bit and um I, I mean, I, I'll I'll c- you, I t- couldn't come to their perspective. At the end of the day, I, I couldn't. I'll tell you, I'll get tell you that.
1: exactly. I'll tell you exactly what the issue was because, dude, we had done many, many focus tests before the game came out, and mock reviews and everything. And yep. you know, we had we had a mock review that loved us and a mock review that hated us. So the word I would use is polarizing. And you know, and again, it's like to jump ahead a little bit with Asphalt. It's like when I was talking to Michael about my pitch for Asphalt. Probably the number one thing I wanted to avoid was any issue that was going to be polarizing and that's not self-censorship it's it's literally just a way of thinking about you know if you're steven spielberg and you're going to try to make a movie that's going to appeal to a wide audience you're probably not making a movie about bikers you know you're just not the nature of it the thing about the thing about the biker culture if i had it to do over again i probably wouldn't have done it because it's just polarizing right so i was a huge fan of sons of anarchy um and in your part of the world, I was a huge fan of this series called Bikey Wars. Yeah, another one which is which is kind of an amazing show. In fact, if you've seen it, then you know that it's like I kind of ripped off that scene where the main character and his girlfriend are riding, and she kind of like closes her eyes and rests her head against his shoulder. It's like that was such a powerful moment in bikey wars. And it's like uh, it's like that to me encapsulates what the bike culture really is about. It's about the freedom of the road. You've got the, you know, your alpha male dude who's a, you know, he's a badass. He's got, you know, he wears leather and he's got guns. He knows how to use his fists. Yes. But he's also got, you know, he's also got a woman he loves dearly. And, you know, these these guys have these deep relationships um, that on the surface may seem kind of, you know, cliche and, 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 I don't know, and misogynistic, but it's really not. It's like they have, like everybody else in the, in the human family, they've got relationships they care about, family they care about. And you know, there's this kind of the the, the uh, I, what's the right word? It's like the the way a biker feels about his his significant other is very different, I think, than than is you see portrayed in most relationships yes. in film or in games. And that's kind of what I wanted to capture was a little bit of that dude. I would literally go to the ends of the earth to find you, right? And I would literally do anything to protect you. And you know, and they mean it for real. Like they will pull out their knife and stab you if you look at them wrong. So you know, so there's that kind of weird. I don't know, just very machismo (laughs) approach to male-female relationships, which I love. So anyway, uh, would I do it again? No, (laughs) because it was polarizing. There was just too many people who, you know, in the reviews for the game – there was a scene where Deacon's looking at his wife's ass, and that just you know made some reviews. Oh, that aggravated crazy. a lot of people, didn't it? <laughs> I know, it totally did, right? And the, and the and this is a true biker line, right? The one he uses at his wedding, where, where she says like, you know, you just have to promise to ride me as much as you ride your bike, dude. That that's not just from Sons of Anarchy; that's from every biker wedding ever done. Yeah. it's like from the research I did. It's like these are real bikerisms, and um, it just drove some people nuts. And it's just like, well, okay, that's polarizing. It's you know, God of War doesn't have that problem because you know, even though you're Kratos and you're, you know, you're killing people left and right. um, Mythology isn't polarizing. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah, exactly. It just
0: is what it is. And people embrace it and learn and work within those constraints. By
1: the way, kudos to Neil Druckmann for using some polarizing elements in, in t too, right? So he made some narrative and character choices there that were, you know, I think, I think they had to know this, that these were going to ruffle some feathers and these were going to create waves. And they did it anyway. I'm I'm not saying it's bad to do it, I'm just saying that I, you know, it's like I would hate to go out the gate knowing that I'm gonna piss off a lot of people yep. um with my next game. I'm deliberately choosing topics and things that I So for example, to jump ahead to, to, to Ashfall a little bit, um one of the things I definitely am interested in is in the real world, you know, far future, like let's say hundreds of years in the future, what is the effect of global warming and climate change gonna be on humans' lives? Yep. And I think and I think it's just devastating, right? So I think that's a super interesting topic. Please tell me it's not polarizing. Everybody in the real world, minus a few Republican, you know, congressmen, yeah. knows that global warming is bad. We're seeing the effects of it this summer. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. yeah I've, I've heard a
0: lot of stories about what you're seeing uh, uh, in your current summer, and and even for us this oh, winter, this, this winter for Australia and kind of my part of Australia is and
1: we just saw, we just saw unusually cold, like right, right? We just saw uh I don't remember what it was like three hundred and fifty million metric tons of sea ice just broke off of the ice cap in in, in yeah. Antarctica. That's just gonna you know, dude, in ten years' time this world is gonna look very different than it does today. So, you know, again, I exploring there's exploring those topics I is fascinating. Explore, a lot of things I can explore um without without being polarizing. The, the other thing I wanted to say about Days Gone is and this is something I really kind of haven't gone into in a lot of detail, but I might as well hear. It. Um when people first started complaining about zombies, right? So this was yeah. a this was a fight I had for the longest possible time. I finally gave up. I'm like, okay, I get it. You guys are talking about the genre of zombies, and there's all kinds of creatures within that big classification, right? You've got, you know, Walking Dead zombies, shamblers. You've got the 20 Day Later zombies, the guys who move really fast, the I Am Legend zombies, right, that are basically infected humans and so on. So um, what I wanted to point out, though, was that if you're making a shooter, and that is still the currency of video games
0: yeah for sure
1: that's, that's the number one currency of every action game you really don't have that many choices <laughs> to who your enemy types are right so if you're horizon you're you're shooting robot dinosaurs um you know if you're uh, resident evil you're shooting basically zombie demons yes. if you're if you're the walking dead or days gone you're shooting some version of zombies if you're you know any of the world war 2 shooters you're you're shooting human beings um, you know, and that's what I was with. You know, siphon filter for so. It many always years. boils
0: down to one key aspect, which is
1: it's something like, shooting something. You so you've got, you know, you've got five or six enemy types. You got demons. You got zombies. You got robots. You got humans. What else you got? Um, so it's you know, so to me, it's just like if gamers really thought these things through before they started complaining about something, they would realize that you know, if there's only so many choices, if you want a shooter where you're going to go out in a big world and shoot a bunch of stuff. There's not that many choices out there. It usually falls can.
0: into a few specific baskets.
1: Exactly. So with Ashfall, I think I've gotten around that because, again, I want I want it to be about – I want most of my games have been pretty well grounded. I want it to be grounded in reality. But on the other hand, I don't want to limit myself to just human antagonists because yeah. I want there to be, you know, again, a lot of variety. And I think that's one of the things that we really exceeded at in, in Days Gone because you had the Rippers – that behave differently than the marauders or the, you know, your typical sort of um, bad guys out in the world. Yep. You, had the, you had the, you had the militia army dudes who behaved a little differently and then you had all the different freaker types. So just having enough variety of enemy types so that, you know, you just kind of don't get bored when you're out the in the world. Of life. Um, <laughs> exactly. So um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a real challenge that, that most developers don't talk enough about is like if you're, if your currency is, is conflict and, and, combat how do you what possible chance do you have to be innovative or to be fresh moving forward because it's all been done
0: yeah that that makes a lot of sense and i guess this is probably the perfect opportunity for us to to jump across to to ashfall and uh, i I guess i should shout out there was a little bit of consultancy work that you were doing in the middle there as well as as we as we discussed earlier you've been writing books and and doing art as well kind of on the side and in the meantime but um we we've touched on the fact that you and you and Michael are now working together and obviously the yeah for anyone who hasn't seen them uh, check out those photos the the high production photos of is all suited up and looking fantastic but how did how did that opportunity actually emerge in the first place obviously uh, Michael he was working I mean he'd moved on from Visual Arts Group he, there was That's No Moon and then I, I guess maybe in the eyes of some all of a sudden out of nowhere because I think people had settled into, okay this is what he's doing and then all of a sudden the two of you were together with Lethos and and forming this this fantastic new thing and um ashfall was announced and obviously there's the web 3 component which i'm sure we'll discuss as well um but how did that all come about in the first place
1: dude almost exactly like you just described it believe it or not it was just uh because you know like i said a couple of summers ago i knew michael was working on the you know that Snow moon he was putting that together for smilegate put together that triple a studio in a very short amount of time you know hired a really great team um you know and to be honest i'm not sure exactly why he left or what or what happened with that but i definitely know that you know it while he was doing that i was doing all my own personal projects but i was also working on this concept called asphalt and i remember just pitching it to to michael on a zoom call you know i had my deck already done and you know and the idea was pretty well fleshed out so the the deck i have now has better concept art because we've hired some guys who are Or do like some of the art you've just referred to. They're doing amazing stuff. But uh, the idea was all there. And, you know, I sort of alluded to this earlier when I was like, okay, you know, my last game, you know, for the people that loved it, they really loved it. How can I get more people to love it? right. Yep, that's fair. What I'm doing next. Is there there a a story idea or an IP? Because it's more than just story. A successful IP launch has got to combine... a a set of universal truths that everybody can identify with, right? So some of the ones behind Ashfall, like I mentioned climate change, but there's more than that. Like the biggest, like the probably the most important one of the story is the ideological war that's going on right now in the United States. I don't know how tuned in you guys are over there, but dude, the red blue war is only just getting started and it's just going to get worse. So, you know, and it's really not just Democrats and Republicans. It's a, it's a war of ideologies. It's a war of, Hey, you know, do I believe in a woman's right to control her own body, or do I believe we should go back to the 1950s and you can't have access to contraceptive or abortion, and you know, and you don't and you don't get to vote? It's like so. It's kind of like uh, um, it's certainly you know, been a big
0: topic out here since since it really bubbled to the surface, obviously recently in the in the US. It's it's certainly I mean we, there was there was a lot of activity in the streets and those sort of things in support. Um, yeah, out here as well. So it's certainly one so of those think, things that is you know. But
1: dude, I think very worldwide. beneath that surface is is uh, racism, right? So I think there's a certain amount of at least on the on the side of the red team, there's a certain amount of fear that people of color are going to take over this country and shape it into something that they don't like. That's a real fear that I think is underlining a lot of this. Yeah. So it's ideology, it's racism, it's also, dude, and this is the one that scares me the most because I'm an atheist. Um, and I do not believe in God. I do not believe in any kind of benevolent being. And yet yeah. I've got, you know, half this country wanting to force me, you know, to, to pray at meetings or to, you know, it's like the, embedded in our Constitution is this concept of separation of church and state. And that is clearly being eroded. By, like, the current right wing majority in the Supreme Court, and so on. It's like, I don't mind if you believe in God. You just can't force me to, right? So, that's how our company, that's how our country was founded. And I'm a firm believer in that. So, ideology is going to destroy this country, in my opinion. So, I just fast forward, you know, a few hundred years and say, what does that look like? To me, it looks like. Um, We're in medieval Europe. It's like there's no such thing as the United States. There's no such thing as states. There's all these little fiefdoms, little uh, I call them enclaves, where people with competing ideologies, you know, it's like all the people in rural Oregon are red. They want to band together and separate from the more liberal parts of Oregon. You know, so Portland and Eugene, these are all very blue areas. And I can imagine in a far future where those are literally two different states. There are two different countries and they have their own you know they they just they have their own government and their own system of belief and so on so to me that also is not polarizing this is a this is a truth whether yeah i mean we kind of really see it now it's just it's there. just the the force yeah. so, sep-
0: uh, separation that comes from that yes
1: and, so, and by the way so one of the things that i that i was pretty proud of what i had done in days gone was presenting all sides because dude i grew up in southern oregon i think i mentioned this my yeah. mom was a founding member of the of the national association to keep and bear arms her group was the one that came up with the bumper sticker that says, "You can take my rifle when you pry it from my cold dead fingers." Oh, they, you know, yeah, these right, are okay. hard, These are these are hardcore Second Amendment um, gun rights people who believe the federal government is going to come and take your guns so they can enslave you. They they really do believe that. So I presented that point of view in Days Gone. It's like, and I didn't do it critically, right? So Copeland represents a way of thinking about the world you know that's kind of paranoid and believes in conspiracy theories and you know at the end of the day if you played the whole game you realize that copeland's not wrong so you know and again it's like what i what i loved about the argument schizo and iron my cat is that schizo wasn't wrong it's like he may have been an asshole and a bad guy and you may have enjoyed killing him at the end again spoiler alert but i presented every argument in that game as if the person making the argument knew they were right and and I think they are right I think that that schizo was right about Iron Mike I think Iron Mike is a complete idiot who doesn't recognize that you can't have a democracy in a world where people are trying to come and just kill you know the Rippers are going to kill you no matter what so you kind of doesn't matter who you are
0: what you believe or what you say
1: yes so and I want to do the same thing with Ashfall I want to present conflicting points of view you know I will never agree with or you know approve of people who want to control women but on the other hand you know they must they must believe they're right (laughs) you know amy coney Coney Barrett must believe she's right somehow some way and i try to get in their head and say why would you believe this and you know and try to present that as as if it's a valid way of thinking so anyway i you know i definitely think there's a lot to talk about in games and i love you know again that's one of the things i kind of appreciated about death stranding was kojima's you know in, in kind of in his sense, it's kind of like in an over-the-top way, but he's got big ideas he wants to explore. Yeah. He's not just making a game about you know, you know, finding the next fubble or you know, killing the next big bat. Games that have something to say about big issues that, that that affect us all. I think that's where I would like to see games kind of go more in the future. And yeah, agree. Of of I I agreed to kind of come out of retirement and make asphalt because that I was already thinking along these lines. So when I pitched it to Michael. And, you know, and he was already starting Lethos at that time. I think he remembered that pitch. And he's like, that, you know, that could be a, really good. Let's do something really that. that. could be a good launch time. And so, you know, so we negotiated. And that's how I came on board. Because, uh, you know, I knew I had the chance to, like, make one last game. Maybe maybe not the last one. Hopefully but definitely make the game that could, that could improve on everything I wanted to do on, the, on, you know, on the sequel to my last game. I could do an asphalt and, and more.
0: Yeah, the culmination of all you've learned so far
1: exactly which
0: which oh. is a fantastic pre- uh, you know top level sort of idea and then of course yeah the, the, those kind of conflicting ideologies and how they will
1: collide well, in a, these there, different ways just will just on be a, fascinating on a, pers- on a personal note I was able to I learned so much doing because like I told you I, did, I learned a lot from Amy working on Golden Abyss I learned a lot just by doing on days, on days Gone so you know I struggled for I struggled with the story for a long time for you know three years trying to figure out how to make a story that you know because i definitely feel every story no matter what the medium is it has to be kind of a three-act structure it has to have you know an opening part where your protagonist has a normal life and then something shitty happens to them and then that explodes them into act two which is them learning how to cope and learning how to grow and learning how to overcome whatever and then by the time you get to act three you've you've learned enough that you can you, you can try to you know solve or resolve the overall conflict every game I think has that structure, yeah, the it's got a story. but trying to translate that into an open world game was a challenge. And then also trying to, you know, it's like there, there, there's only, and this is the thing that sucks about games. There's only seven stories in the entire universe and they're all told in different ways, but it's the same seven stories. And, you know, the problem with gaming is gamers are really, really harsh critics. They'll be like, Oh, so you know, so so Deacon lost his wife. So you know, there's a trope for that. It's called fridging your wife, and you've and you you know you have like your loved one, and all she is is going to be like the object of your desire. Dude, every story is that way. Yeah, it's there's like,
0: a lot of that across all yes, forms of media.
1: Yes, that's my point. So you know, it's like okay, so you got what do you got? Your revenge stories, or you got you know the quest for the holy grail, or you've got you know. It, it, it's just like there's only so it's like I, I don't remember very many people watching star wars and going oh so you know so they fridged aunt brew and now and now luke's got to join the you know jedi so he can revenge and no dude that's not what that story's about right yeah so, i mean anyway, you're
0: right that these stories can often boil down to those as you say seven different kind of core ideas but it's it's what you build upon that and the the people yes. that you inject in their stories and those sort of things still, around it, that that really adds still, weight it,
1: it, at the end of the day, the princess has been captured and she's taken to a castle. Yeah, you need to go save and Don- her. And Donkey, can- Donkey Kong has to stop you from reaching her. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's obviously a really fascinating one. and leaves me all the more fascinated to see how, again, like these world, um, the, these these topics that we're, we're kind of seeing wrestle with now and their potential conclusion, how all that kind of interacts with the stories you're trying to tell, the core stories you're trying to tell. There will be really, really fascinating. I'm really, really excited to see it another well, I think one
1: of, definitely one of the things i'm doing with asphalt. so you know again putting a lot of thought into this so th- there's no new ideas under yeah. the sun that's just, the, you got to start with that it's like so please take this with a grain of salt i'm not saying any of these ideas are new but what i think might be a new sort of ingredient in the stew is number one it's not post-apocalyptic so that was an early messaging thing that i think already put people on fire because they're like oh great another post-apocalyptic game and i'm like no this is this is we 're talking about projecting into the future yeah. the horrible shit that 's going on today, so if you want to call it post apocalyptic fine but it's not it 's not in the same sense that days gone was where there's one cataclysmic event that destroyed the world or, or a nuclear attack or an asteroid hitting or something like that
0: yeah it is the evolution it's, of a it's
1: more grounded it's more grounded in something that's very very real. The one element that I have added is you know and i, I, I don 't want to talk too much about it because we have more reveals coming, but it's I call it the trace which is, you know, the, the science fiction element of the game. These are imagine, sort of pockets of dark energy that pop up and appear all over the all over the world at once, and they yeah. have devastating effects and blah, blah, blah. So that's, you know, learning about what these things are, where they came from, how they affect the world. That's going to be, you know, a huge part of the game. But beyond that, it's like I, I think the part of the, the, the game that I'm looking forward to the most exploring is the character of Ash himself because, he, you know, we've talked a little bit about this. He's born without arms my sister had a severe disability. She was born with cerebral palsy. And, you know, I remember watching all the years she was growing up, you know, her struggles, right? Not just the physical struggles, but also the mental struggles, because, you know, she would get teased by her classmates, you know, for being different. And that hasn't really kind of been explored in games very much yet, right? So it's not just, I'm going to make this guy a superhero by giving him bionic arms. It's, you know, it's more like, what is the impact on you know on a human being how does you know how do you how you know how do you go from being somebody who's just kind of wants to be a normal and fit in and now you've got you know this kind of superhero story where you've got these this ability to do these other things that nobody else has so in a weird way it's kind of a you know it's kind of like the dark night meets you know a post-apocalyptic story and again that's kind of something i haven't really seen which is putting that sort of you know superhero origin story into the mix and saying if we if we go far enough forward in the future and so the world is very different but there's still lots of you know it's not crime fighting it's literally disaster fighting and it's like how you know how do you do that in an open world game and that's something that I kind of haven't seen explored as much
0: no that'll be really fascinating I'm really really interested to see it and I guess you know, like talking about the the disability component of it and the fact that we really don't see that sort of thing in games I mean we touched on it before but those yes yes the the top level sort of perspective of, of a game might fit into those seven buckets, but it's then the the characters and their stories along the way that can really grow this into something that does feel more unique and and you're right, we don't see that sort of thing in games I'm yeah, sure, look I, I'm sure there's a few examples of course, but they're not the high I, profile ones yet
1: and I think the uh, you know what I think that I think the difference is and for better or worse, and I'm not saying this is for better, it could be for worse, yeah, but I think it's just how unique the how, how how the perspective of the author fits into the story so i know my story is going to be unique because i'm the one writing it so it's not being done by committee i don't have a team i don't have a creative team i don't have producers i answer to i don't have you know i don't have like a marketing team that's asking me if i can sell this right if you're working for and again this is not denigrating them. All major corporations have a lot of money at stake, yep. and they have to you know, they have to go through all these, these green light processes to see if something's marketable, or if something can sell, or if something is going to appeal to a wide enough audience. You know, I know Pixar and Disney go through those same meetings, so does Marvel. So, it's like, you know, I understand, and, and, but I also believe that, you know, a guy like Jordan Peele doesn't make nope if he's got a bunch of people telling him what to do. He's got to be able to have his vision. Tell the stories he wants to, he to tell. Yeah, whether you whether you like his finished product or not, a Hitchcock movie is a Hitchcock movie because you know he supervised the script, he hired the writer, he did all the storyboarding, and every Hitchcock film is a very distinct thing. Yeah, and I think the same thing is true of all the the people who are creatives who you think of as auteurs. And I I personally believe the gaming needs more of that, right? <laughs> the gaming industry needs more people like Kojima, and Druckman, and and Corey. These are people that uh, you know have, can bring a vision to a thing, and I don't know if you saw any of Corey Barlog's uh, stuff on his God of War. So he did a bunch of post Yep. And one of the things he talked about was how much pushback he got about you know? the,
0: and, the, uh, the the one shot camera and all those sorts of things.
1: No, just about the relationship between Kratos and his son. Oh, okay. So for a long, for a long time, it was called Dad of War, oh. and everybody hated the kid, right? And it's just like to me, it was just like okay. That you know, could they have done a game without the kid and without that storyline? Sure, but the they've fact done that lots of those they, already. The fact that they did that game, um, that was a surprising direction to take that franchise. And you know, without Corey, that that that, that decision doesn't get made. Right. Yeah, so sure. that's that's visionary, and that's what I think the game industry needs more of.
0: Yeah, people who are willing to shake things up, try things a bit different, go off the beaten path, and explore what's possible.
1: Or, or just be themselves just have a story yeah. they want to tell and just say that's what makes it not one of the seven stories is yeah. because it's got something unique to them
0: no that makes a lot of sense now obviously as you say there's there's little reveals that are planned for ashfall going forward so I'll, I'll leave those those moments uh, alone for now i guess one of the other aspects of the game that has been discussed a little bit post the announcement is the the web 3 component of the game and obviously, the you know, I mean, we see in in plenty of circles people stomping their feet and screaming and shouting about NFTs. And I mean, I've I've had a little chat with Michael on the side who, as he kind of because I I don't even have I, I wasn't one of those kind of screaming and shouting. I I had really no idea. Like I I, I saw this top level top uh, surface area idea of what an NFT is and. Um, but I'm not I'm not the tech minded sort of person, so a lot of that kind of washed straight over me at the time. But I heard that there was obviously backlash against the idea, and so Michael kind of explained a little bit about how it would work in this space, and I started to appreciate it a little bit more. So maybe for the sake of our listeners here who maybe haven't been a privy to that sort of idea yet and how how it's being integrated into Ashfall, you able to talk a little bit about that for me?
1: Well, OK, so here's here's what I can say. So, number one, Michael is the guy to talk about that, not me, because yeah. he's the one who's the, you know, so it's Lethos and, you know, his relationship with, uh, with Hedera and, you know, the way they're working with the hash graph. It's not even blockchain, right? It's not yeah. your it's not your standard blockchain. It's a very, very different system, but with the same idea. Right. So the idea is you've got and this is, I think, the key. Um, the gamers who hate NFTs don't understand. And, you know, I'm not going to convince them, by the way. Yeah. Um, you're either going to convince yourself or you're not. So I've already had some of these tw- Twitter wars that I've backed out of because, dude, I am just I just don't have the energy to argue with somebody who hates NFTs. Yeah, um, you're not going to change anyone. But here's, mind. What I, here's, what I can, here's what I can tell you. It's like, my, and this is just my my limited understanding. And, oh, funny enough, by the way, so I mentioned I talked to Jeff Tanell, He's also doing NFT games right now. Yeah, right. And yeah so the the key here's the key concept that i wish gamers would understand in my opinion web3 is just about digital ownership that's all it is it's like no matter what you call it no matter how you frame it it's about the idea that if i buy something in ashfall i own it right so if i buy a vehicle i own that vehicle and so you know it's tokenized it belongs to john garvin and if, you know, if I decide to quit playing Ashfall, I can just, you know, because I played World of Warcraft for two years straight when it first came out. Yes. I have a steed in World of Warcraft that I think is worth like $1,000 now. If I could dig it out of that account and sell it on eBay. Yeah, remember the password, was, get in. <laughs> yeah, it was just, dude, you know, it's like it was super hard. It's like super rare because, and again, I you know, the argument I hear online is, well, you know, the NFTs are, are, you know, artificial scarcity. And I'm like, dude, artificial scarcity has been built into every game I've ever played. It's like you know the the, the rare steeds and wow, were rare for a reason because yeah. it was bragging rights for players. It's like oh, I've got this really rare item. Um, the same thing with you know every game I've ever played, whether it was Diablo or I'm playing Path yeah, of Exile right drops, now. Loot drops all of those stuff, sorts You know it's like yeah, it's like uh, they're bad ways to handle it. Like I think the real money auction house Diablo three was yes was kind of a bad idea. Um, but still at the end of the day, if you read the if you read the EULA on all those games. You didn't own shit. All you were doing was you had the right to use these assets for a while, but they belong to the corporation that created the game. And, you know, and I think that, you know, to me, it's empowering to think of a system where the gamers own the assets and not the corporations. It's yeah, the I mean, it's a, it's
0: a fascinating flip, that's for sure.
1: I mean, to me, I don't understand why anybody would hate that idea, right? It's, if you don't want to do anything with it other than, like, keep the stuff in your inventory, then fine, what's the big deal? But if you like the idea of having ownership of your digital assets, then also, what's the big deal? Yeah, and that you know, was one of the things Michael was explaining to me. Is you don't that have to engage. If you're done, if you're done playing Asphalt, you'll be able to sell it. Right now, you can't yeah. sell any, of the, any digital game that you own. You can't sell it because it's linked to your account, and it's got your name and your password, and it's part of your trophy system and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I can envision a marketplace in the future where everybody owns their own game, just like they did when you had to go to... You know, when you had to go to GameStop to buy them, right? So yep, yep. you've got a digital, basically a digital token version of Asphalt that you own, and if you want to sell it, fine,
0: you can. It's, it's a really interesting way to look, look at it.
1: has an issue with that? I just don't. I don't get it.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure as more information comes out about the game, I think that. Well, I mean, as you say, we're probably there's no conversation potentially here that's going to change minds, but I think when people potentially see it in action, maybe that's the the moment where things start to click potentially.
1: Yeah. I totally, I totally hope so. Yeah. Because to me, it feels like a weird argument to have. It's like, Hey, this is just another technology. You know, some games will use it. Well, some won't. And it's, you know, it's like, I remember having this discussion about when CD-ROMs first came out, man, some of the Sega CD games like sewer shark. I don't know if you played that. Um, it was just a terrible game. Cause they were full motion video games yeah. where you just kind of your interface was, Hey, click on this. And then a video would play, click on that. And then a video would play. It's like not great games. But you know they use the technology to make something that could not be done without CDs. Without right? CDs, so, so in my opinion, that's that's all NFTs and blockchain and Web three. All it is is a technology, and it's just going to depend on how developers use it.
0: And if you don't want to engage in that side of things on the consumer side, you just you don't have to. Exactly is, my, is my understanding. So, um, I guess that kind of further fuels your point, which is if you're not interested, that's fine. It's, it's, it's okay. Like, don't play the game that way you can do you can do so so that's
1: yeah
0: um which is which i think is great on the consumer side because if you're really into the into that side of things and you have that deeper understanding you want to engage with it by all means go for it and if if you're not for that at all if you're opposed to the idea and you want to play the game just as the game is you can do that too and that's i think that's fantastic and it kind of keeps the door open to all and allows people to enjoy uh the narrative that you're putting together these stories that you're putting together this open world that's coming coming together and that's really exciting yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. As we start to wind things down a little bit, I'd love to kind of zero back in on on you more specifically as opposed to the products themselves. And we've spoken about a lot of people um, that you've kind of worked with or looked at from afar. Is there anyone who really has inspired you and in the way you go about your work? And obviously we spoke about Amy before being really important in the case of Uncharted and obviously several others too. But is there anyone out there that either, I mean, they may not be part of this medium, of course, that has really inspired you and in the way you go about your work?
1: Well, we've we've mentioned a couple of them. I think um, I, I've been actually kind of lucky to be able to work with some kind of some of the bigger names in the early part of the industry, like definitely Mark Blank, who was the founder of, of, of uh, Infocom and, you know, helped kind of create the, the text adventure as a genre and you yeah. know, was the writer and creator of Zork, all the Zork games. Um, you know, if you've been around games in the 80s, you would know what that is. It's like yes. it was just it was just huge and then you know being able to watch uh being able to watch um jeff tennell at dynamics you know was was pretty huge being able to watch roberta williams right so she was like one of the early you know sort of creators of the graphic adventure so you know in a weird way it's like i've been watching these people as the as the computer and as the game industry has evolved you know the founder and the creator of the text adventure and then one of the early creators of the graphic adventure and then jeff tennell did you know, and Damon Sly did some of the early, uh, you know, flight simulators. Um, you know, th- those were all really, really huge. Um, and then also, you know, working with uh, you know, just watching, you know, it, it's like I didn't work with him, but I've, but I've gotten to know him since. Is uh, David Jaffe yeah. and watching his, watching him work on watching playing his work on God of War and Twisted Metal, you know, but even the games that I didn't like as much, I could just see the ferocity of them. So, like, drawn to death. It's oh, like yeah. it wasn't you know, it wasn't necessarily received very well, but man, there's a ferocity of vision in that game that I appreciate. It's just like, you know, so having I mean that I guy had him back, on the show in the past. Lost <laughs> of, it's a loss of it's a lost of games, by the way, that he's no longer in games and making games. I think he's really enjoying, you know, his, his Content uh, side. yeah, his his the gigging that he's doing now. Um uh, but yeah, you mentioned Amy Heddock. I thought she was just really, really, really good at what she does. I can't wait to see what she does. I think she's working on another Star Wars game now.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um,
1: so yeah, so I can't to see can't wait to see what she does there. Um I mentioned Carl Barks already, dude. It's like some yeah. of my biggest influences. Probably Carl Barks is my biggest because I fell in love with his work in my teens and then got to meet him and had him critique my artwork. Um, I don't know if you can see it, but that's one of my oil paintings. Behind in the background,
0: yes, yeah, Scrooge in the background. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, audio so... listeners. <laughs> but <laughs> right. yeah, it's yeah, there's yeah. a fantastic piece in the background
1: there. But I've been doing these paintings for you know for as long as I've been doing games. I did my first painting when I was 17, so right around the same time I discovered video games. So they've, they've kind of gone hand in hand. But you know, as a as a as a visionary creator, as a guy who just you know worked anonymously for 30 years in in Disney film and comic books. You know, it's like, again, I'm not putting myself in his category at all, but he's very similar, right? So he grew up in Oregon, you know, 20 minutes from where I grew up, and then he slaved away in an industry that didn't appreciate him for decades, and I kind of feel like that applies to me as well. And then, you know, and then just finally, you know, getting a a chance to, you know, know, discover himself by the time he hit retirement age, which is kind of what's happening to me. So I feel a lot of affinities for him, but man, dude, I've got a library of his work that fills. entire shelf i mean the guy just was prolific and created so many amazing characters and stories and he just you know was a relentless workaholic so you know i think i appreciate all those things about him
0: so towards the uh, towards uh, you say obviously towards retirement age and all those sorts of things so did he he had his own michael that came along and suited him up and (laughs) applied that glitz and glamour
1: yeah so it's kind of you know it's a funny story for him because he retired and he was also an artist and a painter and he was doing landscape paintings i just wrote a book i'll send you a link so you can plug it for me <laughs> I, wrote a book I mean i'll give
0: you the chance shortly too but yeah
1: i, I, I published a book called carl barks paintings and drawings 1965 to 1971. it was a five-year period of his life that nobody had written about yet yeah, and right. so i created this entire hardback book that that collected all these paintings that he had done and you know he was self-taught so he taught himself to be a, a landscape painter and you know by the time he became discovered as the creator of uncle scrooge you know he could paint so he asked disney for permission to to paint uh disney subjects and they gave it to him and that's where his fame really took off so you know his paintings in the 70s were selling for 150 250 and today they sell for three four hundred thousand dollars a piece so you know that's he's got this international market of people who love his work and collect it um very 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 expensive now and that's kind of how you know he was able to retire. He lived to be 99 years old. So from the time he was 71 until he was 91, he did these paintings and could make enough money to be able to retire comfortably. So that was, that was a really good thing for him.
0: Yeah, I bet. I mean, any of, that, any of that kind of steady, constant income from a beautiful creative endeavor in that exactly. period is, is awesome, right? Um, yeah. We've obviously touched on some of the valuable lessons you've kind of picked up along the way. Is there anything that really sticks out, that's something that maybe even helps guide now as a bit of a North Star, even as you work on Ashfall?
1: I'm sorry. Can you say it one more time?
0: Are there any particular? Oh, sorry. Um, lessons that you've learned along the way. Now we obviously touched on several throughout the different games and experiences you've had. But is there anything that's that really sticks out now that perhaps is that north star of a to an extent when it comes to Ashfall, or just creative endeavors? Full stop.
1: You know, I think um, it's going to sound really cliche, but I think the the biggest thing that I've always learned is. Um, is never stop learning, never yep. stop experimenting, never stop growing, never stop, never get complacent or never get too happy with where you are. So, you know, so it's just a, a really recent example is, you know, because Michael and I are doing this comic book based on the IP at the same time as I'm doing the game. Yeah, And I have always done, at the same time I've been doing games, I've always done comics as well. These sort of like little um, indie anthropomorphic animal just experimenting, you know, and even 10 years ago I was experimenting with how to do, backgrounds and 3D studio with, you know, really good t- textures, hand-drawn textures and lighting and atmospheric effects, but with hand-drawn characters sort of superimposed. So I've always been looking at, you know, and then I told you last year, I spent some time with Unity yep. and kind of learned Panoply, Pin- which is their, uh, add-on you can get to do motion comics um, and adventure creators. So was, I was learning how to do 2D adventures and, you know, and and that just kind of, you know, gets your mind going in a way where you can think about, how things work and how you could do things differently or what you might want to do differently and so for the comic book i had written a script for the first issue of Asphalt, and it was pretty good i thought it was really really good and then i'm working with the the you know mike's hired this guy who's really knowledgeable about comics and i have never done it i had written a couple of resistance comics believe it or not so yeah. that's what we had we hadn't talked about but um dark horse i think came out with a four issue miniseries for resistance 2 and yeah i've buried stories somewhere was, around here right know so my, there the, backup, the backup story was by me and the uh because it was about james grayson and his brother before his brother died but anyway the uh the the, the comic i'd written was okay it wasn't great <laughs> that's kind of what you know that's kind of what this guy told me he's like eh, well You know, it's like, it's okay. And so I took that as like, oh, I should take another look at that. So anyway, it had been a while since I read comics. I wasn't up to date on what comics are doing today. And so, you know, I just basically bought, you know, a dozen titles and just kind of read through them and see, okay, what are comics today? What You know, what are writers and artists doing? And it was pretty different from what I had done. So I, you know, just took another stab at it. And I was like, all right, this this is what I think a comic today needs to be and so you know wrote a script and yeah blew everybody away it was like oh yeah this is it we're going to this is what we're going that's I so play. So, so now i kind of know how to do comics right so and it and it's literally a matter of just immersing yourself in whatever it is you want to do please don't come into games thinking you're going to make games if you don't play games yeah right my number one advice to people who want to write novels is you got to read a lot of novels you got to know Immerse what's going yourself, on in it. This is- Yeah, so I think Stephen King said that in his book on writing. It's like, if you want to be a successful writer, you got to be a successful reader. you got to just immerse yourself in whatever it is. So it's like I'm always learning. I've never stopped, and, uh, and hopefully I never will stop. I think that's the most important thing. And, you know, my other piece of advice, and this is probably more to game devs than anything, is to draw your inspiration from something besides games. It's like if all you do is play games, then you're drawing all your inspiration from from games. a narrow bucket. You, yeah, yeah, and then you get like a lot of me-tooism, you know. And we've and we've talked about that. You've only got the seven stories, but there's, you know, you can dress them up with, with things ways. that you draw from, draw from life, and draw from, you know, go see some live theater, and you know, read some comic books, and obviously, people watch a lot of television and see a lot of films, but. There's more to life and there's more to art and there's more to be discovered out there. Absolutely. You know, I would say immerse yourself in as much as you possibly can and it'll help every aspect of what you create I think.
0: No, I'd, I'd agree and I mean, I mean you're talking to a teacher so the constant learning thing is something you're, you're talking like <laughs> straight up my alley there. I applaud all of it. A couple fun ones as we wrap up. Yeah. If you could be credited for any game, so just retroactively add your name into the credits and maybe because there was a particular aspect that you just wish you could have been responsible for or had a hand in bringing to life. Is there any game out there that you'd pick? You
1: mean games that I had nothing to do with? You
0: had nothing to do with that you'd love to have somehow been involved with, yeah.
1: All I can tell you is like some of my my favorite games of all time, um, just because of the impact they had on me as a gamer, I would say that number one would be Red Dead Redemption, the first one. Because yep. um, that just had, you know, it, it wasn't a perfect game. But you know it's like I number one I stole so many ideas from them for days <laughs> gone it's not even funny but the way they used um, actual songs with lyrics as an emotional way of bridging important sections of the game it was the first game I had played that had done that and yep. it was it was done really well so the ability to create a fantasy you know in their case the old West and kind of delivering on that you know incorporating every Kind of genre and trope of the old west, and still doing it in a way that that was fun to play. Um, that was a really, really good accomplishment. I liked that game a lot. And I, yeah, you know, I think um, I think Uncharted Two is probably another one that I felt was like a perfect game. So you know, again, a perfect mix of just great action and character development, and you know, building on what they had done in the first one, and kind of making the you know all the set pieces work as well as they did. Um, just what an achievement that game was right absolutely uh, okay. the first diablo dude i spent so many hours playing the first diablo and it was also the first game you know because i was talking a little bit about how innovation and games in. yeah innovation and technology just sort of drove changes to gameplay over and over again the big one in diablo for me was i had two teenage boys at the time and we all lived in different cities and we were able to play a game together for the first time because you know i literally bought them a pc and a modem And we played Diablo together, right? So, you know, they spent all their time killing each other for each other's years, so that wasn't (laughs) fun. But uh, it was, you know, it was the ability to play games together across long distance. Dude, what a foreign concept that was, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, it's like, uh, that was a game changer. So, and I love that game. I told you I was working on a game much like it when mine got canceled. Yeah, the barbarian. Yeah, so... um, Yeah, there's, you know, it's like the dude, I was like there at the very start of MMOs. So I didn't play Ultima Online, but I did play EverQuest. I was one of those sad people that was addicted to that for three years. And uh, I was Sony at the time, right? So I actually got to, I actually spent time because I would go down there for motion capture. I spent time at the Varant Studios and got to know some of those guys behind the scenes and some of the stuff they had to go through working on that game. And, you know, how they basically had to give every developer at Varant an unlimited level fifty character, so they would stop playing the game. <laughs> so they basically had yeah, to right. ruin the game for them. They did, yeah. They had to like basically overpower them so that they would stop wasting all their dev time playing the game, right? They had to create new content, break it not, for
0: them, and can we get back to yeah. it Let's go.
1: Yeah. So it's just it's it, for people who weren't there, it's just hard to imagine how addictive that was. EverQuest for average players, myself included for a couple of years, just highly addictive. It's just you know one of those experiences that transcended gaming. It became a way of life, and yeah. you know I would spend my holidays and my weekends and my evenings, you know immersed in this world and playing with online friends again, kind of a transformative experience yeah. so everQuest and then I played every mMO after that, but none of them, even including World of Warcraft, ever matched the intensity of what that first experience was so those are probably the top five. There's some fantastic just, yes. just very, very different experiences that, you know, for, for different reasons.
0: I mean, maybe the answer to the next question is similar to the ones you just provided there. If you could strike any game from your memory and get to play it again, just come at it fresh and get to re experience it for the first time, is there an obvious game that you'd pick?
1: That's a good question. Because <laughs> there's so many different ways you can look at it. It's not, an, look it's, not easy, it's, it's not an easy It's a combination. It's, it, you of, know, yeah. it, uh, you know, the obvious one would be like Everquest again, but I don't want to do that. I never want to do that again. In fact, I will because never do the time it. and place thing too. Because because of the yes, because it's it's so addictive. It's like so I deliberately don't play games like that anymore because I don't want you can to have, well Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, dude. I don't know. That's a really really good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for you though.
0: That's okay. I mean, again, I mean, you've cited things like Red Dead as an, and Uncharted Two as examples. There, there. I mean, I guess you don't go slipping down the MMO well on those ones.
1: Yeah, right. Thankfully. Um. Yeah, maybe, maybe Red Dead would be fun to be able to experience it, but you know, and the reason I'm, I'm sort of hesitating on that is because I played Red Dead Red Dead Two, and it didn't have the same feel for Punch. me. Right. It was yeah. just maybe it was just too polished, or it was just trying to do too much i don't you know know. there was a time
0: and place element about the original there's all sorts of things that yeah could be reasons behind that that's i mean that's totally fair enough i don't blame you either
1: yeah well it's like we were just saying right it's like sometimes you can only do a thing the first time because then it's the first time it's gone yeah and then the magic is part of it because i played the first red dead too right and it wasn't the same right so it was kind of a linear sort of you know shooter and red dead was like the first open world Yeah. red dead revolver red dead revolver yeah yeah so that's fair
0: yeah. Anyway, so as we wind things down, there we obviously mentioned some plugs and bits and pieces. Now, obviously, the mo- your most recent gaming launch Days gone. Still available, PlayStation. Go, go pick it up. I think I can't remember. If, I, I feel like it's a part of the PlayStation Plus collection. It's. I mean, it's available through the PlayStation Plus um, new service. That's kind of rolled out there as well with extra and deluxe and all those and premium and all those sorts of things. Uh, so please, if you, if anyone watching, uh, sorry, listening has not yet tried days gone please make sure to do so um i will attest to i mean everything john's saying as a consumer of it i absolutely adored my time with the game had a had a blast with it and hopefully you do too um
1: and if you have any doubt by the way you can also play you can also get it on steam and check out the check out the reviews dude there's something like um, 70,000 active reviews from people who are who have proven they've not only bought the game, but played the play. game. And I think you have to play it for a minimum of like, I don't know how many hours before you can write a review. But dude, the reviews are 98% positive. So if you have any doubts about the game, you know, once the they cleaned up all the technical issues and the frame rate and the streaming and it's smooth now, um, the, the Steam version I hear is really, really good. But yeah, the PC version is really, really good. The PS5 version. I, I think the PS4 version is pretty good now as well. Yep um and the other things i would recommend um to plug two additional items is the art book so again i wrote the art book and then created it with the with the entire team and it was published by dark horse you can find it on amazon it's got it's more than just an art book it's got a bunch of behind the scenes little articles written by most of the creative leads and uh just a fun book. It's like I had, you know, it's like that's the only large art book like that 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 I've been involved with, and it was fun to put together. And then the uh, soundtrack. If you had, if you don't have that, the yes. official soundtrack. If you're a vinyl collector, um, that package turned out really good. So I wrote the liner notes for that because I worked really closely with with Nathan Whitehead on the on the soundtrack. Yeah. And man, it's a uh, it's just some beautiful music that went into this game. So um, I would Make just, sure to check, check all of those out. out. Yeah, if you're a fan of the game. Then, then definitely check those items out as well.
0: Make sure also, of course, to check out Lethos and what what John's doing with Ashfall. Obviously, we mentioned earlier there's books that you've you've published as well. So, what could people go and look at uh, look out for in that space?
1: So, if you just go to uh, JohnGarvin.com, or do a search for John Garvin on Amazon, or go to EnchantedImages.com, then you can find all the books that I've done, and uh, there's even some links to some of the paintings that I've done.
0: Fantastic! Please again, yeah. please make sure to check all of that out. And uh, finally, social media. If people want to reach out and get in touch, even just follow what you're up to currently, where should people go?
1: Biggest way to connect with me is on Twitter. So I'm very active on Twitter. I respond almost because I don't have that many followers. So, you know, like guys like, uh, you know, Jaffe's got 70,000 followers or something. I've only got like 7,500. So I do a pretty good job of keeping in touch with anybody who's, especially if you're positive, you don't have to like my games. Um, I don't respond well to any kind of negativity about anything. So, dude, it's like, I, you know, my mom taught me when I was in kindergarten that if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I think that's a really good rule for Twitter that I wish more people would follow. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just there's just so little room in life to dwell on negativity about anything. So it's like my feed is pretty positive for the most part. I think if uh, you're not following me, you would enjoy it because. You know, we talk about more than just games, but we try to keep it pretty light and keep it pretty positive.
0: That, that's awesome to hear. So yeah, make sure to catch John on, on Twitter. And I guess from, from myself, thank you so much for coming on the show. As, as we mentioned earlier, we've been talking about it for a while and I'm, I'm thrilled that we finally got this chance to have a chat. And I mean, it was great to learn a little bit about all of these various chapters of your journey so far. And I think on behalf of, well, on behalf of myself, but I think also the audience, we're all really excited to see what's to come. So thanks, John, so much for
1: providing your time today. Well, thanks for having me. It was a blast, dude. This is like this two hours went by so fast. So, time i fast. are having hope, fun, right? I hope I wasn't. Uh, I hope I wasn't boring. No, <laughs> no, not at all. That,
0: that was. I was fascinated the whole time, and I'm sure everyone listening was too. So, again, thank you so much for coming aboard the show and, and sharing this journey so far.
1: And if anybody and if anybody from the press is listening to this podcast and trying to find a clickbait headline, please don't.
0: <laughs> or, or just shoot me a DM, and I'll tell you exactly what you need <laughs> that you said after the show or before the show. No. <laughs> uh, again yeah uh, thank you so much for coming on the show Thanks for having me man and listeners as always thank you so much for listening I'll see you next time bye. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to in an interview, then please find me at PaulJamesGames on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been John's story. Thank you much for listening and I'll see you next time.